In the beginning, there was darkness. A void waiting to be filled with the echoes of destiny. From the depths of time, legends emerged. Heroes forged in the fires of adversity, their stories etched in the fabric of eternity. Through the sands of ancient deserts, across the vast expanse of galaxies, and amidst the tumultuous waves of the ocean, their journeys began. But amidst the chaos, there arose a whisper, a call to action, a beacon of hope. Now, as the world holds its breath, a new tale unfolds, a story of courage, of triumph against all odds. Join us as we delve into the depths of imagination, as we embark on a journey beyond the realms of possibility. For in every tale lies a lesson, in every legend a truth waiting to be discovered. This is not just a podcast. This is an odyssey, a quest for knowledge, a quest for inspiration, a quest for the very essence of what it means to be human. Welcome, dear listeners, to a world of infinite possibilities. Welcome, dear listeners, to the True Life Podcast. be in like three seconds probably right here okay okay good ladies and gentlemen i hope that you are enjoying your day your evening your night your wherever it is and where you are listening to this or you're watching this i hope you're enjoying it because i know that life is short and you only get some some random moments to feel beautiful and i hope you're in the moment because i have a series of moments for you to enjoy. Ladies and gentlemen, allow me to introduce our esteemed guest for today, Sebastian Marincolo, a true Renaissance soul whose journey through the realms of philosophy, linguistics, and the intricacies of the mind has illuminated new paths of understanding. Dr. Sebastian Scholl, as he's academically known, earned his magna cum laude PhD through a critical analysis of neuro-philosophical theories of consciousness. Mentored by luminaries such as William Lycan and Simon Blackburn, his academic lineage reads like a who's who of influential philosophers. What sets Sebastian apart is his unparalleled exploration of the cannabis high. Spanning over 25 years, as a researcher, he delves into the potential of cannabis as an altered state of consciousness, and as a philosopher, he weaves together the threads of personal experience and scholarly insight. Sebastian's journey is not just confined to the ivory towers of academia. He has ventured into the uncharted territories of photography, producing the limited edition macro photo art series, The Art of Cannabis. Through his lens, he brings to life the visual poetry of his unconventional research. A published author, a published author his latest work, Elevated, invites us to reconsider cannabis as a tool for mind enhancement. This groundbreaking book explores the vast spectrum of mental abilities that cannabis may influence challenging preconceptions and igniting a dialogue in the intersection of consciousness and creativity. From being mentored by the late Harvard Associate Professor Emeritus Lester Grinspoon to taking on roles as Director of Communications and Marketing for one of the world's largest cannabis producers, Sebastian's journey has been marked by a courageous exploration of the uncharted. Today, as a freelance writer and communications consultant, Sebastian continues to shape the narrative around cannabis. His presence has graced international news outlets, TV shows, and podcasts. 
breaking through the strong taboo that often shrouds the topic of cannabis use. Join me in welcoming Sebastian Marancolo, a philosopher, photographer, and trailblazer in the fascinating terrain where consciousness, creativity, and cannabis converge. Sebastian, thanks for being here. Holy cow, can we stop now? Because from, from here on, it's only going to go downhill. <laughs> Whatever I say. <laughs> yeah. Thanks. Oh, wow. What an introduction. Um, I feel totally intimidated. <laughs> it's working. Okay. <laughs> well, I'm stoked you're here, my friend. I, I, um, I really enjoy our conversations that we've had so far. They've been really rewarding. Yes. And I think you have a phenomenal way of, of putting into words experiences. And so I'm looking forward to sharing that with our audience. I thought maybe a good place to start for people to really get an understanding of, of what we're beginning with. Maybe you could begin by talking about the master or your PhD thesis, just kind of get some background on, on the way you think. Right. Okay. Well, first of all, <laughs> let me start over again. Thanks yeah. for having me, <laughs> George. It's it's amazing to be here and talking to you. It has, has been a journey already, and I'm looking forward to our conversation today. Um, so, yeah, I was um, I started to become interested uh, philosophically in the in, in human consciousness before I knew that uh, philosophy exists Be before I knew that a discipline uh, exists, uh, an academic discipline called philosophy. And I remember I was so happy when I when I uh, found that uh, there are people out there who professionally deal with those things. Uh, so I was at the age of 15, 16, I started to to look into theories of consciousness. And I think I took like we all as, as kids, we all ask philosophical questions. Um, and it always amazes me to see like five-year-olds coming up with uh, philosophical questions and ideas where you're like, wow, where does that come from? They, they have that openness still. And I think for me, that never ended. <laughs> so um, so um, I was very early on, I was really focused on in, in my philosophical interests on the um, on consciousness and questions about um, human consciousness. How does the brain manage to generate whatever we feel uh, is consciousness? Um, do Could computers generate consciousness uh, or have consciousness? What kind of animals do have consciousness? You know, are, are ants conscious or mice conscious? Are elephants conscious in the way similar to what we believe is consciousness, to have an inner life, to have those sensations? Um, so, so these were, were the questions that um, I was after, and my dissertation thesis <clears throat> uh, is dealing with maybe the most radical thesis of our time, uh, which is called eliminate, eliminative materialism. And um, <clears throat> uh, briefly, um, the thesis says that all of our psychological theories today, all of our language that we're using to describe the inner lives and the behavior of other people, when I, when I say Jim loves Mary and therefore he does that, or John believes that Rome is a beautiful city, therefore he wants to travel to it, or you know, all that kind of psychological vocabulary. Um, uh, some neuroscientists um, said, 
would have to be replaced by a future language based on the neurosciences, based on what we know about the brain, uh, based on the new models of the brain, um, con so-called connectionist models, because up until the 80s, 90s or 80s, so um, we had more computational models of uh, the human mind and how the how the human mind works, uh, where we talk about sentence crunching, and so to say, and where we see um, the computer model basically installed in our brains. And, and, and then uh, people came and said, no, we have to take a closer look at the brain and see how it's actually wired. And we see those neurons being wired together in certain ways and inhibiting each other, et cetera, et cetera. And based on that, they came up with uh, models of the brain and human thinking that were radically different. And they said, okay, we already see that um, our explanations of how uh, fears, anxiety, sleep, love, all those psychological states we're postulating in our folk psychology, but also in our cognitive psychology, which is built upon the vocabulary of our folk psychology, that all this will go away and be replaced by a materialist. So it will be eliminated and then replaced by a materialist language. And, and so this is something I discussed. It's a very radical thesis and I oppose it. Uh, I said, uh, we don't really have all the reasons to believe that, but, but, it's, um, but I also, in my thesis, I argued that yes, we are gonna have a lot of insights coming from the, uh, the neurosciences and the cognitive sciences, the empirical uh, sciences, material science, scientists, uh, sciences, um, which will change our mind about um, how we function, how we, uh, how our mental states uh, can be explained, how how behavior works, etc. So, um, and I think that kind of defined my journey also, uh, uh, because I've always been think I've I've always been thinking about where to. Where do I get my knowledge? Where, where do I get my knowledge about the human mind? And then later about altered states of consciousness also. And uh, basically the insight from there is to, you have to look in all directions. Um, we're gonna talk about that later, maybe when, when it comes to my approach. But so that was my dissertation thesis called Alien Minds, um, investigating eliminative materialism and it's called alien minds because one of the implications of the eliminativist the, uh, thesis would have been that we usually think that uh, we know our own minds. You know, we have introspective access. If you ask me, Sebastian, why did you go to the movies yesterday with uh, Tom or so? I'd say, yeah, I, you know, I thought the movie is a great one because it has this actor in it, and Tom is a good friend of mine. I wanted to spend more time, and then. You know, the limited a Freudian maybe would come along and say, "Yeah, your your vocabulary is more or less right, but you forgot about your unconscious desire to see the pretty lady uh, that works at the reception desk or whatever." Right. You know, and um, the eliminative materialist would say something like, "Ah, oh, whatever you say is just plain wrong." <laughs> you, you know, your brain. You had all kinds of other reasons. Uh, I can't state them in your language, but. So, and, and that's why I called it alien minds because it one of the implications would have been that what we know about ourselves and how we describe our own minds would also be radically wrong. 
And uh, like I said, I oppose that view, um, but it's an, as all radical theories, it's an interesting one to discuss because like when you discuss knowledge and a thesis like everything we know could be wrong, uh, you come up with, um, you, you actually have to think about, um, about the general nature of knowledge and uh, you have to really defend what kind of knowledge you feel is better than other or what kind of beliefs you hold or probably more uh, something that could be called knowledge than others. And, and uh, so, of course, these are philosophical debates, but they are, they are of great importance to how we see the world and how we navigate the world in general. So yeah, so that was my dissertation thesis. <laughs> it's awesome. Yeah. I love it. It's I, I think it's a great foundation for the conversation that we're working our way into. And so after writing that thesis, did you have a relationship with cannabis or what began to move you into this world of cannabis from 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 this philosophy from the knowledge of philosophy? What was the turn into cannabis from there? Um yeah, so I had experiences with cannabis when I was 24, I think. Um, I I started to uh, smoke cannabis at that time, and I had a I really had a good few good sessions with friends and and liked it, but it didn't um, it didn't spark my interest to to such a degree that I pursued it. And then um, when was that? Maybe at a year later or so after I started, <clears throat> I went to a New Year's Eve party, and that, that's something that I describe in the the art my book, yeah. The Art of the High, is um, where I uh, went to the party and I smoked another joint, was fine, and then I took a, I got a hash hashish pralin from a guy who overdosed these things a little. I guess, and it was uh, an, a really funky experience to some degree because I couldn't find my ear anymore. I, I remember my ear started to itch a lot, <clears throat> and um, and I remember that I stretched out my hand and I wanted to scratch my ear, and I couldn't find relief. So I was <laughs> I turned my head and I was like, so I was I wondered, you know, I was like, why is that not helping? And I turned my head and I was like, okay, that's ridiculous. <laughs> Um, but it's very telling also because later in my books, and we haven't talked about that before, I, I found that cannabis probably is involved in the, or has an effect on the body imaging system. So we have a body imaging system in the brain that helps us to locate our limbs and to, uh, like if, if a needle sticks here, then I have a, I have a pain feeling and I can right. locate it exactly where it is and what it is, or I have a feeling of I'm getting burned here or somewhere, or I have an internal feeling. So we have a, basically you have a homunculus in our brains that tells us where uh, that control that is also responsible for motor control, but also for the perception of the body. And there are interesting things happening when we use cannabis. Um, it actually can enhance the sensation, make mm. it better or more intense, and we feel better where things are and how they feel, like touch sensations, etc. But also, if you if you have a strong doses, you can also um, you can also uh, have distortions of your body image perception, like I was just reporting. Yeah, you know, you have here, you, you don't know where you 
<laughs> where your ear is located anymore. Right. So that was um, that was uh, um, a little painful because when I um, when I had it was funny at first, but then I was really I felt really bad and I lost orientation and I I went through. Um, yeah, I was at a party and I was completely mind, I call it fragmented, where you're mm. losing orientation. You're like, what, where am I? I remember walking down the stairs and I was like, okay, I'm now at home in front of my parents' house. And then I looked up and I was like, no, I'm in Stuttgart. Uh, and then I looked up. And I was, so it was a feeling like um, when you, you know that feeling when you, when you go to a different place, maybe in your vacation and you wake up and in the first two seconds of waking up, you feel like, Oh, I'm in. Uh, no, I'm not. I'm where am I? <laughs> so for, for just two seconds, you're completely yeah. disoriented, and you're like, "Huh?" And, and I had that all two seconds, you know, like, "Oh, I'm in." Oh no, I'm not. Uh, I'm and and so so that was it, it. Was not a nice feeling. It was a really horror trip, and so I I didn't use cannabis for a while, and then I came to the states, and everything now that I'm talking about now is hypothetical, of course, because I don't know. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> you know. uh, but anyway, so I I started to or I had started to work on my dissertation thesis, and I, I got a stipend, all kinds of stipends from Fulbright and and other German research institutions to, and uh, that was a real blessing to go to the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill because it was such a strong philosophy department at the time, especially for my field. Uh, I, I was lucky because uh, the University of Tübingen in Germany had such uh, strong relationships uh, to American universities, and I could actually also choose. Mm -hmm. So I was there for, this, for the second time uh, for a year of research, and I, um, I then um, stayed in an apartment with another philosopher and a toxicologist. And as I usually say, um, the lowest common denominator between a philosopher and a toxicologist are psychoactive substances. <laughs> so um, we uh, started to, uh, to use cannabis and we went through similar phases and, and experienced similar effects. And while I was working on my, um, on my thesis, I thought, that is actually a really interesting uh, way to, which I later called the Alice in Wonderland route to understanding the human mind. So my interest in cannabis and the cannabis high was not only um, the cannabis high as an, to characterize it as an altered state of mind, but also to, um, to look at it to look at consciousness itself and see mm -hmm. what we learn from the from the enhancements and i look mostly at the positive potential of the cannabis high which i think makes my research special because i was never interested or to some degree there are a lot of lessons to be learned from my research about the risks of cannabis also um uh, and and the downside but also but i was really interested in how cannabis affects higher cognition yeah moods etc and how we can use it as a tool uh, to um, as for the as a positive potential. So, so that's where where I started to think about about it because I had a lot of really great conversations with that brilliant mind, and I can't name him because uh, 
<laughs> I'm not sure if in his state he would be fine and working for the institution he does, he would be fine with being named in this role. Right. But um, uh, that uh, that was a very important phase for me. And then I, during my uh, dissertation thesis, writing my dissertation thesis and working on it, I thought, okay, I need to, this is this is where I need to go next. I start. I tried to get uh, funds for that, and I, uh, you know, I completed my dissertation thesis uh, uh, and uh, with great grades. And I had a lot of professors helping me and giving me letters of appraisal. Uh, but of course, I mean, at some point, even <laughs> being the naive philosopher, <laughs> excited philosopher excited about the positive potential of cannabis that I was and still am, I it began to dawn on me that I was about to ruin my academic career. <laughs> and, uh, but then it was a conscious decision. I said, okay, I need to go, you know, sometimes I just have to do things. Sometimes it's just, you, you know where you have to go. And I knew I had to go down that rabbit hole. And of course I, it was actually, it, it was, a. Um, I almost got a, a scholarship uh, for a German, to, to be part for a year to get a fellowship for a German interdisciplinary research project with uh, artists and uh, business people and, um, and scientists who would all work on something uh, connected to the uh, concept of to memory. Uh, to the subject of memory <clears throat> and of course uh, memory is a very interesting subject to pursue yeah. and talk about cannabis um and i remember the i still have it in writing uh the response of the guy who was responsible for it he he talked to me then he said he would have loved to see it but he was um uh he said the money they get from comes from a conservative foundation for the program and um, without the backing of the Max Planck, somebody like the Max Planck Institute or so, or without, you know, if you would be the Max Planck Institute, then you would do it, but he, he can't, he just politically can't do it. That's what he told me, that's what he wrote. Even though he got a letter because he wrote to the Max Planck Institute and they said, do it, it's the right guy. Uh, and they were already involved at that time. That's more than 20 years ago. They were already involved in the research of cannabinoids. And um, so uh, that was a close call. But anyway, so I, I pursued it. I went, that's when I decided to finance it myself and work as a creative director, as a photographer, uh, idea man. And, and uh, I went, went for like this um, path which of course slowed down my my writing and my research but you know I was I'm I'm a, I guess I'm a stubborn guy <laughs> <laughs> well I, I'm glad that you are and I'm glad you took the path that you did yeah you know, I, I think maybe this is a good time to open up the idea of the the cannabinoid system you know it's it's not not a whole lot of people really know it and even less people understand it maybe you could give us a little bit of background on that yeah, actually, it, it took me a while to um, to hear about it myself. So um, uh, the endocannabinoid system was found 
in the late mid late 90s when they first found receptors in the brain and we now know a lot about the endocannabinoid system because there are as far as i remember more than eight to ten thousand scientific articles if you go on pubmed and put in endocannabinoids or endocannabinoid system i think you'll you'll find more than <clears throat> in the league of ten thousand articles on it wow and um so there's there's a lot of research on this system we know that it is more than 600 million years old because you find it in sea creatures that are evolutionary you know are that old and um it's active in all animals uh humans and all other animals and it has uh it has um receptors on agonists like cb1 cb2 receptors there are anandamide and two ags are the agonists and they're built by the body to control and to uh, control ver uh, various functions in the brain and in the body. The receptors are all over the brain and all over the body. Um, and um, it has a, a whole spectrum of functions. So the we know now that the endocannabinoid system is involved in the control of uh, stress, uh, sleep, um, pain, memory, learning, emotional processing, mm -hmm. temperature control, nociception. So, so pain, various pain functions, uh, the way it controls pain, uh, neurogenesis, plastic, neuroplasticity in the in immune system, in the way in, in our inflammatory responses in eating, so appetite control. And generally, most experts now believe that the endocannabinoid system um, is involved in homeostasis, which means it keeps an inner balance. Um, you know, think about temperature. We we need to keep our body temperature stable at a certain um, uh, point. A certain. Uh, don't ask me about the Fahrenheit. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, in Celsius, it would be 36.6 right. degrees or something. But of course, if, if our te body temperature, if it's cold outside, if our body temperature goes down for some reason, somebody needs to observe that and control it and upregulate it. Or if it goes if it goes up too far, it has to go down. And so there needs to be a measurement and, and there needs to be some kind of control to keep that in balance. And if you think about our cognitive functions, it's you, you see that all over the place. Yeah. Fears, for instance, or look at pain and fears or, or anxiety. If you are, let's talk about fears. If, you, if you're too fearsome, uh, you won't be able to go out of your house anymore. You're non-functional. You, you, you're not a good survival model. If you have no fears at all, you're going to die very soon because you're jumping off a cliff and you're going to be like, yeah, you know, it's, it's 100 meters deep but so what i see a funky animal down there yeah so you're going to be dead so so also there needs to be a balance with pain the same thing if you're if your pain sensation is so sensitive that you know walking on the floor is painful to you because your feet touch the floor that's not helpful if you have no pain sensation you're going to be dead soon because you know you at one day you're gonna have your hand on a on a hot 
part of whatever and it's going to burn off and you die because you don't feel the pain so also here you need to have a balance so 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 this is the um mind-blowing thing about the endocannabinoid system and um so endo go back to that endo means from greek inner so again it has nothing to do with a human or an animal having ever touched or ingested cannabis uh, your body and the body of all animals, except for insects, build uh, builds um, endocannabinoids and, and endocannabinoid receptors and enzymes break down the uh, some parts of the etc. So it's a it's a very complicated system, but it uh, biochemically speaking, and of course there are all the mechanisms that built up those receptors etc. Um, but um, this system is there to control um, balance in health, mental health, as well as in physiological health, um, like keeping your temperature, your appetite, etc. And if you look at the whole um, spectrum, and we're going to come back to a whole spectrum in in many aspects of talking about cannabis, um, it's it's amazing to see that maybe one of the most or the most important um, systems for keeping a health healthy balance uh, is has been neglected to a degree because it can be modulated by cannabis and first of all hasn't been found for a long time mm -hmm. and not been people were not really able to research it and secondly um, <clears throat> we have seen for for thousands of years that human cultures have used cannabis which is the plant that most directly um, has an effect because uh, thc and other cannabinoids mimic or are biosimilars to our to anandamide and 2-ag etc or in that case anandamide and can therefore affect that system and uh, can therefore also help us to keep a, a healthy balance if that system is out of balance or dysfunctional in, in other ways. Um, and it's, it's actually, it's not amazing, but it's actually horrifying to see that humanity has outlawed uh, uh, the plant that helps us, that's very non-toxic also because because THC and other uh, and other cannabinoids are they are so non-toxic because they are similar to something that already runs our mechanisms. You know why would that be toxic to the brain? So uh, it's it's horrifying to see that humans were so stupid in the last like hundred years to outlaw a plant that can help us in so many ways and. To just give you one little aspect of that, in Germany, even before we had the medical law, the medical cannabis law opening the medical market here, that was in 2017, um, there were only a thousand patients before 2017, ex almost exactly 1,000 patients who had managed to get exemptions or to, to go through the um, narcotics agency here. Uh, to be able to either grow cannabis themselves or to get some cannabinoids somehow. And it was a horrible path for it. It was really hard for them to get it, but they got it for more than 
50 indications, different kinds of indications, medical indications. So, and now there are even more. So if you look worldwide, it's not only used for chronic pain, but on, or, and then you, you have ep, uh, uses for epilepsy, for sleep, for stress, for what kind of anxiety, uh, and for, for tick syndromes. If you look worldwide, what cannabis is used for, uh, of course, the evidence in some arenas is a bit is sparse. In some, it's stronger. For instance, when we talk about chronic pain, but 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 the use of it in terms of indications is, is incredibly broad. You have a whole spectrum of indications for which cannabis is already in use, and in Germany as well as in other countries. And this again reflects the multifunctional nature of the endocannabinoid system. And, and if you look at that, you're like, how could we be so stupid um, to outlaw this substance uh, for medical use, uh, like so strictly for such a long time? This is, this is an incredible story. And I always feel like here in Germany or in the last years, People have changed their minds maybe a little bit because, especially here in the German middle class, up until very recently, people thought, yeah, you know, history is going like we're going from the dark ages of uh, of dictatorships. And so we're going into democratic ages. And what the governments do is sometimes may not be the best thing, but it's, you know, and it's scientifically informed and therefore if they outlaw something, it must be, you know, they must have more or less a reason for it. And now we're seeing in the last years, um, uh, Europe almost collapsing, you know, under forces, right-wing forces, uh, France almost collapsed. England is kind of swimming away under uh, those campaigns that are the populist right-wing campaigns. And, Hungary is, you know, drifting away from democratic values. And um, in Germany, we have right-wing parties coming up to a degree where, you know, we're getting really anxious. So I think people are more open now to the understanding that maybe governments and societies have acted extremely irrationally towards the whole subject. But uh, before I go more into politics, let's uh, stick to the endocannabinoid system. So, mm -hmm. uh, so this is the endocannabinoid system. Let me say one more thing about it. Yeah. Um, is something that you need to always tell people in the medical realm, sadly, because most doctors, uh, even the younger generation of doctors, they haven't been informed about this. This is not something they teach at universities. I mean, they've started now, but... But it's uh, it's still not uh, most universities still don't have a strong don't 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 really teach their medical students about it. So so I, and I know that because uh, as a communications and marketing director for one of the biggest companies um, or the biggest company uh, producing cannabis in the world in Germany, I had to sit down with doctors and talk to them. I went to the conferences and they had no clue. They, they were just like, what, what are endocannabinoids? And um, so, so this is a, this is something 
which is not like in its infancy. People, we, like I said, there are eight, 10,000 articles. We know a lot about how the endocannabinoid system works. I mean, there's still a whole universe to be found out about it and how it interacts with other body uh, signaling, with other uh, biochemically sign uh, signaling um, mechanisms. But, <clears throat> but uh, there's a lot already that we know. And, but there's a huge lag um, in education when it comes to the medical world. Um, and, and of course it plays a big role for, um, for my research also, because you can see how some of the um, uh, endocannabinoid research to some degree confirms uh, the reports of people about what they perceive in how cannabis and high THC cannabis affects their, um, their mental states, their uh, cognitive abilities, etc. It's, it's really well said. It's a great background that you've painted, and I think it paves the way for this next question, which is, in the beginning of our conversation, you spoke about the body imagery system. And if we look at cannabis as a way in which we can achieve higher cognitive function, might it be that under the right circumstances and the right particular use of cannabis, that we can gain hold and in, in thoroughly understand that body imaging system, allow, allowing us to have a higher understanding of, of what is possible and in some ways changing the way we model reality with that? Yeah, absolutely. I, I believe that um, if we study, if we look at, the endocannabinoid system and and look more closely to what it how it may be involved in various functions and i think we know about some uh like thermoregulation but only punctual uh things come up there as as far as i can see but we know that it's involved but i think we we don't know the full degree and how it's functionally involved in the uh, body signal uh, body imaging system body representational system um scientifically we can learn a lot we not only in that aspect and right. many right. other aspects yeah, we absolutely. can learn from the endocannabinoid system um about the cognitive architecture of various abilities uh, cognitive abilities but also like when it comes to representing the body and controlling the body there's a this is a huge area where uh, we're going to make scientific progress Personally, I think it's interesting also um, <clears throat> only looking at the body imaging system. Mm -hmm. And uh, there are a lot of many reports from people who say that, you know, they drink and you know that when you're high and you, you sip on water, cold water, and you feel like it's going down your throat and you feel like, whoa, this is, yeah, water is life. <laughs> and you feel your body and you feel how it... Um, <clears throat> how in you know it's summertime you're hot and you you feel it going down your throat and you have a feeling that everything is more intense and more acute your sensation of the water what it what it means to your body mm -hmm. and very often i believe uh, this is something that is very uh characteristic of the cannabis high is that it takes you back into your body which is a very important function mm -hmm. like we are all we all live in the virtual world right now when i'm talking to you i'm living in the virtual world looking at a screen 
and control subconsciously controlling my body to sit not still i can never sit still anymore. me neither <laughs> but i'm not running around maybe probably my body would want to run around now at least when i was younger um and uh and so we're all uh, in a, in a in a way we're all in a paralysis and very often when we get high and you probably know what i'm talking about when when we get high we feel like oh my god you know suddenly we feel that stiffness in our neck and mm -hmm. we feel like and it's very strong and we're like gosh i've been sitting in front of a computer for days now and i need to stretch i, I just need to yeah. go outside and i need to breathe and i need to do my yoga and i need to stretch so cannabis can take you back into your body because you have that redirection of attention uh, often. And it, it also depends on the variety. Sometimes this is stronger, sometimes it's less strong. This is another interesting story to talk about. But if it happens, it's, it can be extremely valuable to, your, um, to you, to you con reconnecting with your body because we usually, especially in the Western culture, not having routines like yoga, routines like going to massages, not having maybe lots of people not doing sports a lot and sitting in front of computers, etc. Um, it really can take you back to your body and to understand how it affects your mind also, and to understand how how you how you're feeling basically, you know. And uh, so, so personally, looking into how the uh, how cannabis affects your body imaging system. And uh, how it can affect your life by by high is, is really interesting. It's all, already there. That's a treasure. It is. It's amazing to think that we could be on the cusp of beginning to understand higher order thinking and functioning just by reintroducing something that was been in our genetic makeup for generations or for a long time. Like, if you could speak to that a little bit, like what what in the new book or just in your research or in your life in general, what are some other avenues of higher functioning that we may be able to understand by using cannabis? Yeah, so this this is uh, the, the big theme in my work um, has always been the whole, the huge spectrum of, of effects cannabis has on cognitive functions. So let me take you through some of them um, because it's, it's really a lot of cognitive functions and, um, and abilities are affected. And um, generally, um, before I begin talking about the whole list, let me say this. I see, and maybe we go to that metaphor later a bit in more detail, I see cannabis as a tool like other psychoactive substances like lsd or psilocybin <clears throat> mushrooms um and if we take the tool metaphor uh, seriously we need to understand what we that we have to have an understanding of the tool we need to learn how to how to use the tool so i'm describing the positive potential of the cannabis high and that is a potential so it doesn't mean that necessarily you, you smoke a joint, you're, you're going to have all the positive effects that I'm describing. <laughs> you need to understand dosing. You need to understand uh, how you 
how you use cannabis. You, do you use it in a joint? Do you use it in a vaporizer? Do you use? Uh, do you ingest it uh, in what dose and what environment? So you need to think, be able to think about set and setting. So what is your mindset? What is the setting? What is your context? Or with, with what kind of group are you? Um, where are you, etc. And under, if you are able to manage those conditions, and to uh, if you understand better understand the art of the high mm -hmm. Oops, there it is um then uh you're gonna be better at minimizing the risks and the dangers and there are dangers and risks and you're gonna be able to perceive uh or to experience um certain enhancements as uh, my friend and men mentor Lester also called them. Let me say something. Another thing before I yeah, talk please. about the list, because when we talk about cognitive enhancements, I think that we usually stick to a paradigm that is wrong in that, uh, or that I feel is too narrow. Many people, when they think about or when they talk about nootropics as they call them or cognitive enhancers yeah. um they feel like the paradigm are maybe amphetamines or caffeine like substances that make that help us to stay awake uh maybe for a longer time mm -hmm. so so those substances that kept that help or helped the um Soldiers in the Second World War, they, they were really interested in nootropics uh, to, to uh, stay awake for a long time. And um, uh, that is not what I'm talking about when I talk about cognitive enhancers. Well, that could be an, one type of enhancement that you stay awake for a longer time or that you concentrate better for, for a short time or for a longer time. Um, but with cannabis, you have all kinds of enhancements or you can get all kinds of enhancements that are not typically this. And, it's, and also with LSD or other substances, mm -hmm. depending on um, the dose also. So, so this is a very important point because if you take that seriously, look at, for instance, the altered state of sleep. When I'm sleeping, my ability to imagine things and to visualize things is extremely enhanced. So I'm dreaming and I'm seeing maybe myself uh, hanging off a cliff in all detail with, you know, or as a painter, I'm dreaming and I dream up an image that I may be able to paint the next day because I remember visual details of the dream. Uh, so that's an enhancement but we wouldn't call usually call dream an enhanced state of you know or or a cognitive enhancement so so i'd say we need to be a bit more open to the idea of substances altering our consciousness and bringing us states of consciousness that bring enhancements that enrich our experience in our lives but are not typically cognitive enhancers in the sense that an amphetamine is an enhancement. Having said that, let's look at what happens during a high. And um, so one of the most basic things I think 
is happening is the hyper focus of attention. So when you're high, you, your attention becomes more focused. Um, and a lot of people, I remember talking to a lot of people, like for instance, Joe Dolce, who, the author of Brave New Weed, an amazing book, by the way, uh, great guy. And he was, when I talked to him the first way, first time about this, he also has a podcast, Brave New Weed podcast. And um, he, <clears throat> he was like, I don't, I'm not sure about this. And uh, the hyper focus of attention. So, um, so I always introduce two notions, A, selective attention and B, sustained attention. These are mm -hmm. two notions from cognitive psychology. So um, very often when we are high, we have this kind of selective attention where we are selectively able, but then we have something that I call also in my book, The Art of the High, that we call, um, that I would call jumpy focus. So I'm focused, let's say I'm focused on something that I watch on television. I'm totally hyper-focused on, on that. But then I, I become hungry and I'm like, okay, then I switch. I go and eat some. I'm totally focused on what I'm eating, but then I listen to music and my, my focus switches. So to whatever, I'm listening to a great new uh, in, indie song, whatever. And then I'm, I'm listening to the music. I'm, I'm focused on the music. So I have a jumpy, I could have, or also in a, in a conversation, I could have a jumpy focus, which is I'm not staying. I'm not, my focus is not sustained on one thing, but it's always selectively focused, even though it's jumpy. So um, there are means and methods to avoid that by a, not using cannabis that has been degraded for such a long time, such that probably the CBN and other substances we don't know for sure. But uh, if you use aged cannabis, I think that is what's happening a lot is that you become jumpy and that your, your memory uh, becomes fragmented, short-term memory. So it's, it's not going to stay there. I'm just talking about the temporary effects, right? So... Um, so there are ways, if you understand the art of the high better, um, to become really elevated and to become uh, focused and also selectively focused and to have a better focus of attention. Uh, with this focus of attention comes the intensification of experience. Mm -hmm. Probably this is something that most people know get high also, is that you, you eat uh, chocolate with mango uh, sauce and you're like, okay, this is God. <laughs> I'm the mango sauce. <laughs> you know that. And another thing that my friend Jason Silva also always points out, uh, rightfully so, is the feeling of awe, which is really important also because you you get high and you you kiss somebody, um, your your wife in in uh, in my case, and you feel like, well, this feels like the first kiss. This is when you start to marvel and to awe at the sensation because it feels so fresh. The freshness of experience comes back to you. And all, as um, we know from uh, Aristotle, is the beginning of all philosophy and is the beginning of questioning. If you if you look at a tree and you're like, hey, yeah, nice, uh, nice apples <laughs> or something, then you're not going to ask questions. But if you, if you look at the tree and you're like, my God, this is so beautiful. And the way the apples are distributed, or you, you start asking questions, you start your, your 
you start a, um, a journey into maybe understanding better what's happening there, maybe looking at the texture, maybe looking at uh, other questions. So awe is really something that takes you in your experience and that start, may also start an investigation and interest, uh, um, etc. Then you have what I talked about briefly before is a meaningful redirection of attention. So very often you you um, direct your attention during the high back to things that seem to be more meaningful, even in uh, so maybe in your memory, but also you, you you attend to your body or you attend to nonverbal behavior of others more, um, and and it's that is an interesting thing. We could talk for a while about where how it is redirected, but um, I just wanted to mention that at that point as I'm going through the list, yeah. you have not only, I talked about, now we're on number five on the list, we, you don't only have an intensification of experience, but you have a greater acuity in perception, which means, <clears throat> and I think everybody can relate to that who has been high, when you drink, um, or let's say you eat a hazelnut and you're high and you have a great quality uh, from Piedmont, Italy or something, you suddenly feel like you can, you can experience all the nuances in the taste. And, and so it's not only more intense, not only like, oh yeah, nice, nutty. <laughs> it's really nutty. No, it's like, wow, you know, there are hints of berries and that and that and that in there. And, and suddenly you, you feel there's a whole spectrum in your experience of flavors and aromas that you haven't been able to discriminate before. Uh, so, which probably also comes from you being able to focus and whatever comes into your focus opens up a tunnel. And in that tunnel is, there is more to be seen because you screen out other things. You're, you are able to see more in that short tunnel. And of course, I mean, if you go to a restaurant to a dark restaurant and you shut up the light and you don't talk, then you're not thinking about your conversation anymore. You're not seeing things anymore. You, you will experience and taste better. And you not only more intense, but there will be more acuity and perception. You will be able to discriminate flavors and aromas better. And I think this is something that happens during a high. Um, <clears throat> there's an interesting phenomenon um, during the high, which you have more more strongly during LSD trips or other uh, psychedelic uh, experiences, which is uh, synesthetic experiences, mm -hmm. where you, uh, for instance, if, if you're strongly high, I had that you you're listening to sounds and you see I could actually visually trip on, and and there are some uh, probably it depends also on the varieties of cannabis where you get visual, so to say, and you, you have something like a mental trip, a visual trip. And <clears throat> during uh, synesthetic experiences, you, for instance, you can have, this is like the crossover of sensory experiences where you're listening, where you're listening to a guitar solo of Jimi Hendrix and you're, you may see accompanying colors with it. Now the full fledged, Synesthesia, usually we know more from substances like LSD, but I argue in my books, and I started to argue that in my first book, High Insights um, on Marijuana, that synesthesia, even if it's not full-fledged during a high on a moderate doses or even lower doses, might be responsible 
for um, an enhancement of creativity and for some effects we see in cognition. But I'm not going to uh, go into that right now. Let's go to number seven, which is really interesting, is also something that you see in psychedelics, which is enhanced episodic memory retrieval. Mm. Um, episodic memory, as opposed to semantic memory, um, here, because this is very pronounced, uh, semantic memory is what you call like your memory of facts, like that Napoleon was a French, um, um, not king. Uh, general? Not? General? Yeah, <laughs> let's call him a general. Right. Um, yeah, my English is, is, uh, is kind of, uh, anyway, yeah, let's, you, you remember that Napoleon was something. <laughs> uh, um, but um, you, you don't, but the uh, the episodic memory is something different. Uh, an episode in your life, uh, and this is something that many people describe who are on LSD or who are or who have been on LSD or psilocybin mushrooms that they have they remember episodes in their lives as if they would relive it. Mm -hmm. So, and this is an, a really important effect for all kinds of other effects I'm going to talk about soon because it's so useful for you to think about traumatic experiences, yeah. but also think about, for instance, empathic understanding. If you tell me now, for instance, you're going through a breakup with your wife or partner, and for me, let's say my last breakup was 20 years ago. And I cannot kind I kind of cannot really remember how I felt back then. I'm not gonna be able to empathically follow you right down that, you know, to a full degree because I'm gonna be like, yeah, I cannot get over it. Yeah. <laughs> but if I feel like, oh God, I remember how I felt after my breakup. Um, and I, uh, you know, I lost five kilos in the first weeks and then I went through this and that, then, um, I'm going to be able to empathically connect with you better if I, and we always have to rely on our memory to some degree to empathically connect with others, to be able to, oh yeah, I was in a similar situation maybe. And then you, you are better to deeply understand what others feel like, because you have to search and look for situations that may have been similar to that so that's the enhanced um episodic memory retrieval another thing which is very often underrated is intensified imagination mm -hmm. um if i say that everybody's like yeah okay i know what you mean uh so you're high and you are better able to imagine we usually stick to the paradigm of visual imagination but it could also be auditory or it could be tactile or it could be gustatory which means that you uh for instance for a uh chef somebody he might sit down during high and think okay what what could it be like to combine a peanut with uh an avocado and uh this kind of this kind of whatever rum and he'd be like oh no that would taste horrible <laughs> that is gustatory imagination and maybe he comes up with something 
not even trying it, but having generating an idea because his gustatory imagination is enhanced. So he's like, hey, hell yeah, this might be something. Uh, I have to put, I have to exchange this for that, and then it's going to work. And, and so this can help you in your creativity in various ways as a musician composing music or right. as a chef or, you know. So, but also very often when we talk about imagination, uh, we think of, yeah, you know, that's kind of useful for creative people. But no, uh, and that's something that I learned from Michael Gazaniga is that the, the neuroscientist um, is that uh, imagination is uh, crucially involved in all our decision making. So if I ask you, uh, George, do you want to get on a plane with me and go parachuting next day in Cessna or something? And you're going to be imagining how is it going to be to go right. with that nut yeah. <laughs> into, uh, on a plane and then the door opens up there and then you have that cold wind blowing in your face and you look down and you see the mountains from above and you're going to be like, Hell yeah, <laughs> do that. Or you could go like in your imagination. You could go like, uh, mm -hmm. I, I, I can feel the warm pee going down my pants. Right. It's not a nice feeling for me. So no. <laughs> so, but but that's decision making. Or you know, somebody asks you to marry you, and you're gonna you're gonna imagine how's it gonna be with this person to be for longer, and you're gonna be like. Yes or no, uh, but that's imagination and decision-making. So we all, it's, it's not only a creative thing. Imagination is crucially involved mm -hmm. in decision-making in our lives. Every day we are making a lot of decisions based on our ability to imagine things. And, and cannabis can be helpful with that. So you can maybe sit down, try to imagine situations where you yeah. want to, where you want to get decisions. So then there's an effect I call mind racing, which is interesting mm. because <clears throat> it happens, interestingly, sometimes it happens with uh, some varieties and with uh, some varieties it doesn't. Some varieties give you that calm. It also depends on the dose, of course. And sometimes you feel like it's a very calm, high, you're extremely clear, you're focused, uh, you're creative, but you're you're calm. You're it's not like and sometimes you feel like you're so you're going so fast like a speed train. Your mind is uh, is racing, so you, uh, it's hard for you even to run after that train of thought, or you feel like you just fell off your train of thoughts and you you're losing your thread. Um, then you have um, so that's also something you can control with dosing and with. Uh, being in the right mood and also with uh, choosing the right variety for you. Then you have distortion of time perception. We yeah. all know that you have an enhanced pattern recognition. Again, pattern recognition, like imagination, we usually think of pattern recognition. We take the visual paradigm. Oh yeah. I can see, you know, the checker on the board better, but it's, it's think about uh, patterns also and the role of pattern recognition in um, in, empath in empathic understanding, you see somebody walking down the street, maybe even from behind, and you, you pick up a pattern. He's moving slowly. His head is hanging a little. And you're like, hmm, that guy is sad or depressed. You know, So that's pattern recognition, too. Um, 
So pattern, the enhancement of pattern recognition is something incredibly valuable for our understanding. This, all of our thinking is, is based on pattern recognition and the, the exact effects on cannabis and other substances on pattern recognition are really interesting to look at. Also, again, here, we need to think about a balance because if you don't have, if you don't see patterns, you're dumb. Uh, seriously, I mean, if you don't see any patterns around you, you're, you're going to be just, you're going to be unable to deal with your environment. If you see too many patterns, uh, then you project patterns onto things that don't exist. You may be like, oh, you know, uh, they're all watching me or observing right. me. They kind of looked at me. Maybe you overinterpret patterns. So also there needs to be a healthy balance. But uh, having said that, let's move on to number 12. We have an enhanced ability of language understanding. A lot of people mm. that they uh, listen, and I've, I've seen that happening. Uh, all of those uh, things I'm talking about are things that I've experienced myself. Mm. Um, when you listen or when you talk in a different foreign language and for the first time you feel like, oh, you're really in it. You know, you, you can understand it and you feel like, you know what's going on. There are really interesting reports about that. Language understanding is a fascinating thing. We talked about the enhanced body perceptions, number 13. Then the mood modulation is interesting. Usually we think of cannabis as helping us, you know, as being something like helping us to be euphoric or happy. And that's why also one of the reasons why we call it high. Um, but also it can be anxiolytic and, um, it, it's interesting if you look here, just one comment about that. If you look at how the mood modulation contributes to you being able to, um, f to cognitively process things differently, because maybe for the first time, because you have an anxiolytic effect or because you're getting out of depression, you start thinking about your sickness or your um, your trauma, uh, and you, you are able then to approach intellectual um, areas that you would normally not approach and to make progress that's important for healing, that's important for personal development. So the mood modulation is an interesting thing to look at, antidepressant effects, anxiolytic effects that can, of course, go in the opposite direction. If you're too high in the wrong environment, you can become incredibly uh, paranoid or anxious. Uh, so this is something, again, we need to think about the balance and we need to think about employing cannabis as a tool to actually come to a better balance in a certain situation for a certain individual, but it's an incredibly helpful thing. And then we come to those if or to those um, phenomena that, that have been in my focus uh, for a long time, which are enhanced introspection, uh, incredibly helpful. Uh, I also call it because introspection and philosophy is usually more restricted to only states like pain or so, but I call it also reflective contemplation mm. when we're being able during high to reflect better on who we are um, and what we do, what are our patterns in life and how should we maybe break patterns in life, which is also incredibly valuable for, yeah. for uh, personal development. Uh, then we have enhanced empathic understanding, one of the most interesting topics during high, um, 
not only restricted to cannabis, we see that with other substances called uh, pathogens, but, um, but, but that's something that is very close to, to uh, that I feel like we should talk about more. Uh, for instance, uh, cannabis as a medicine for autistic children or people on, or people on the autistic spectrum. And um, um, enhanced sexual experiences, extremely important. Enhanced creativity, which is something that I have, I think, um, really, I have a new chapter on creativity in my elevated cannabis as a tool for mind enhancement, where I go mm -hmm. deeper into how I believe cannabis can affect your creativity and how you can use cannabis as a tool. Always keep in mind, again, that I believe that it's not a contradiction that some people come back from using cannabis and say, oh, that didn't help me. You know, that actually <laughs> interfered with my creative output because I was on stage trying to play a solo on the trumpet and I lost my temporal orientation or, you know, because of the slowdown of time, etc. So you need to learn things, but then uh, to be able to use cannabis for creativity. But, but um, I think the creativity is a really interesting thing to talk about. And I have a very long chapter in Elevated on it. Then uh, spontaneous insights is something that um, is very close to the subject of creativity, but not the same, because I think uh, insights are something more intellectual that happen to you where you have insights into subject that give you because you might have creative uh, push painting some using some different colors without having an insight on the right. conscious level of being like yeah I do this because or I but insights are more something a different phenomenon that was the first phenomenon I actually looked at um, spontaneous insights as in what you have when you have an aha experience how do these ha happen and how can cannabis or some other substances help with those insights? And how uh, is it true that you actually have can have deep insights during a high? And I, I say yes, it is true. And then the last point I'd, I'd like to mention is mental healing, mm -hmm. which is also um, something that is, of course, an incredibly interesting topic to look at. So I know a long list, but it, it's important to me to go through that because it it. Uh, and to, to talk about it briefly, because many people sit on the stereotype that cannabis gives you that dazed and confused happy high. You know, so right. a lot of people coming from the psychedelic world also look at a little bit down on the high as if, you know, like it's the dumb little brother of um, psychedelic substance. Uh, but I believe... There is something to it because if you use what's coming off the black market or has been coming off the black market a lot, which was degraded cannabis in a bad shape, bad condition, used in a bad way, used only for the purpose of fragmenting your mind, de-stressing, forgetting about things, staying in the moment, but being not really functional, which also helps you forgetting about things, then yes, then this is a dazed and confused use, which might be fun sometimes but which is not what I'm talking about, which is a clear functional high that you can achieve when you know what you're doing. Yeah, that, that's wonderful. I think it's also important to, when we talk about the way in which this list of attributes can, can be achieved, in a prior conversation, you and I spoke about why that fragmentation happens. And you gave this very <laughs> elegant way in which 
Look at the way we used to grow outside. Now we grow indoors. Maybe you could maybe you could flesh that out for people. I thought that was really well done, and it gave me an understanding of why the fragmented high may be something that people find these days. Yeah, I compared I compared the recent history of um, cannabis breeding uh, with uh, wine, uh, great wines, and and how they are processed and how they are. Um, uh, bread and grown uh, um, grapes from great wines. And um, so here's here's the thing. If I tell you, we know from the 70s that, let's start this way, we know from when Nixon started um, to uh, go into the prohibition and make even stricter rules and and start he started to hunt down people for using cannabis and <clears throat> people had to go indoors with their growing um and and the government sprayed paraquat on on cannabis grown outdoors and then they had to start think to think about how um how do we grow indoors? How do we grow the plants that they grow under per, grow perfectly under artificial light? That they don't grow too high because you know there's only limited space indoors, and they use fertilizers and 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 all the artificial environments. And of course, the whole genetics was basically uh, moved towards growing perfectly under those conditions, and. Uh, there are great varieties that came out of that. So let me say that because <laughs> there are a lot of great breeders out there wonder, who produce wonderful genetics. But there also there has been a trend, first of all, just to go for high THC uh, plants that, uh, and then to, to go for, for indica or well, yeah, I'm, I'm going to be careful with the indica sativa distinction. You, maybe we talk about that later. But they use plants that grow shorter and they, they, they use the genetics to make, not to produce a great high that I'm talking about, but to produce a high, produce plants that bring a lot of yield um, for the growers to, to have a great investment and to produce what people were actually looking uh, looking to for in the, during the prohibition for something that kind of fragments their minds and de-stress. So they looked only for the days and confused high and the growers gave them exactly that. And, some of the uh, the breeding went into that direction of being perfect under artificial light now, and and then it was overstored. It was maybe harvested too late because then if it's harvested too late, you get bigger butts, you get more weight, but you don't get probably the perfect state that you want to have or the perfect condition of you that you want to have to generate a clear crystal, clear um, cognitively functional high. Then you because there's no education out there, people. Um, of course, there's uh, all kinds of problems with lacing cannabis, other substances in there, pesticides in there, etc. And then people would wouldn't know about cannabis. They only thought, you know, there's THC inside, and it, this does everything. And they would leave it around, uh, um, uh, you know, uh, exposed to air, uh, oxygen, exposed to light, exposed to temperature. It would degrade, and it would give them ex mostly what they needed, you know. Uh, the couch lock high, distressing, but of course, in that situation, you don't get a great cannabis variety. And like I said, I, I put it to you: like imagine you have a wine 
somebody uh, generating a great wine from France, a Bordeaux wine from 86, and he tells you about the soil and about the barrels in which it has been put and about all this knowledge about producing this great wine with the aromas and flavors. And another guy comes along and says, hey, I produced uh, great wine under artificial lights. We had those fertilizers and we didn't really care about how it tastes, but we wanted to grow it short and bring a lot of grapes and getting you completely fucked up <laughs> you know, with the alcohol, high alcohol contents. Here's a bottle for 50 euros. What do you think? <laughs> the other one is like, yeah, my bottle is 50 euros too. So what do you think? What do you choose? Uh, yeah, <laughs> yeah, I want to be blind. I take your bottle for... I mean, that's that's an extreme way to put it. As I said, there are great genetics coming out of even during the prohibition, breeders have done a great job. But if you look at all the factors that were in place during the prohibition, of course, most of them are not very favorable when it comes to producing a great high. And so it the, the prohibition is kind of a dynamic system in which people um produce uh don't pr necessarily produce good quality cannabis and and the consumers are stressed also because of the strong prohibition right. and there's there then they're not educated about what they can use cannabis for so they use it only for that one purpose to take away the stress and the bad material does that for them you know, so so that generates a system in which we see, of course, a niche where some people say, no, we produce great grass and we produce better varieties. And you have some consumers who are still in the underground who go for what I'm talking about. But I think the majority of people go went to because of the prohibition, they went to a, a kind of use or abuse of cannabis, which is very narrowed down to using it for sleep or de-stressing, which can still be helpful. I'm not, you know, not, I'm not saying this is all bad, but it's, it's not, it, it's certainly not the full potential of the plant. Yeah. It's interesting to see it from that angle. And until you had, in our prior conversation, until you had given me that the method in which you described it, it's, it's interesting to see. And it, for me, it helps clarify like, yeah, that's, that, that makes a lot of sense. If, it's kind of the difference between use and abuse. Like you said, it's funny how that word is in the other word, use and abuse. And, and we yeah. use it that way, right? I guess. Yeah, yeah I, I think you, you make a good point. Um, I think, and also when we talk about um, question of legalization, for instance, mm -hmm. people always ask, oh, are we going to have more consumption of can Are people... Are, uh, usually when governments come along, they always say, are we going to have more abuse of cannabis? after we legalize it or, or less. And um, for them, abuse is the only word they have yeah. for the, the for consumption of cannabis because for them it's a bad drug usually or for, for many governments. And, and uh, honestly, I believe that we need to ask different questions because yeah. if, if, we have, if we have more people consuming cannabis after a legalization, or after decriminalization, I don't think that's a problem. As long as, as people using cannabis are happy and are not um, don't have severe side effects, why would that be a problem if we have more people using cannabis? Um, 
more abuse would be a problem. Mm -hmm. But um, apart from the point that after a legalization or decriminalization or a new regulation of cannabis was a better way to put it probably, um, there are studies from European agents, governmental agencies or European agencies for drug monitoring that basically say if you look at France, if you look at Germany, if you look at Holland, you had all kinds of approaches in Europe, in Portugal, some were really liberal, Portugal, Holland, uh, where it decrim has been decriminalized for a long time. France, very strict prohibition. Germany is kind of like in the middle. Uh, if you look at all those regulatory approaches in the last decades, um, and you want to know about the amount or you want to know how many people use cannabis, you don't see any relationship. It's not like a prohibition hinders people to consume cannabis. Actually, in France, you have more consumers than in other countries. I'm not sure if it's more than in, in Holland even, but in Ho Holland is not like at the top top level of consumers, somewhere, you know, below. So, so yeah, we know uh that the uh, that a legalization or, or uh allowed adult use responsible ad use for adults we know once that goes out doesn't necessarily lead to more people consuming cannabis but like i said the more interesting question is how do we avoid abuse and there is abuse there is abuse sure. of cannabis and other substances abuse in the sense of that that it's uh, something that people should refrain of and should be educated to be able to get out of it because it might strengthen their negative developments. Or and, and see that's a paradox with cannabis and not, maybe probably other substances as well. You can use cannabis incredibly well for personal development, mm -hmm. but you can also use it for or abuse it and stagnate and be and get stuck because you every day you just use it to de-stress and to not deal with your problems because you stay in your moment and you, you don't necessarily make much progress, which, which might help you to survive also, but, but it, it doesn't really help you then to really get into a process of personal development. That is something I think that needs some education and you need to be able to employ that tool for that reason. So you cannot, yeah. that's generally something um, I'm saying you cannot just drop a psychedelic substance or a psychoactive substance like cannabis on some people and, and think it's going to help necessarily help them. Uh, probably, yeah, some people at where they are will be helped and it will be helpful to, to of course, I'm for decriminalization and for uh, fully making uh, psychoactive substances available to people in a regulated field. <clears throat> but um we need education around it and we need to people need to learn how to use those substances as tools to make the best of it and to avoid risks. That's so fascinating to me. Like I, as you're talking about that, the relationship between linguistics, ideas, use and abuse and what's culturally sanctioned. Like you're not even allowed to really think about it in a positive way. If it's if it's if it's a criminal act, yeah. you're not even given the mental framework to think about how it could make how it could benefit the way you think. You're only allowed to be couch locked. You're only allowed to think about it in a negative connotation. 
that's kind of mind-blowing to think about. Of course it's not it's gonna have a stigma. Of course it's not gonna be thought about as higher cognition. You're not allowed to think like that. Yeah. <laughs> it's so crazy. Yeah, and, and think about um, I mean, this is a general point about especially the United States, where discussions have been shaped by think tanks who and that's a great lesson to learn from mm. uh, George Lakoff, the, the great American linguist George Lakoff, who mainly also worked about metaphors, mm. um, <clears throat> that we underestimate especially the ultra-right-winged um, think tanks because they managed to shape discussions in a way, metaphorically, the, uh, to... to basically installed their worldview and one of his i mean best examples i think is the um, notion tax relief which came out of the uh, the bush administration so they started to talk about that they would give tax relief to people and the democrats he said swallowed the bait and um and talked about how they cannot give tax relief to people to that extent or to business people, etc. And he said, well, <clears throat> you made a crucial mistake because the notion tax relief has a worldview installed in it, which is that taxes are basically um, are hurting you or, and are, are an injury. And that injury needs to be relieved. You need to have a doctor to give you relief from that injury. Now, the worldview from those who think we need some taxes, maybe you shouldn't go down with the taxes that much, should be that taxes are uh, a good investment in your future because you give your taxes for the state to give you health insurance and to give you uh, roads and to give you infrastructure and other things back. So that's an investment in your future. It's not something you give because somebody wants to hurt you. It's not like the government just does it out of being, you know, being <laughs> bad, badass and wanting to have your money and then, you know, run away with it. So, it, it, you know, yeah. so you shouldn't take the, you shouldn't even use the metaphor and the, the, and the tax relief because the, the metaphor on a subconscious level um, shapes the debate to a degree where it can rationally it's hard to argue because if you argue against it, people are only going to feel like you don't want the government to take away my pain. That's bad. So, and the same is with the war on drugs. The war mm -hmm. on drugs is one of the strongest metaphors on the field, which is crucially wrong. There has never been a war on drugs. There has never been a war where we're, where we are shooting at little pills or Look at first of all, look, it's the war on drugs is a metaphor that's wrong in so many on so many levels. Yeah. It's um it's not a war on drugs, first of all, it's a war on some or it's a military, militarily enforced and police enforced repression of certain groups of people using certain kinds of substances. It's not a war on all drugs. Yes, there's no war on alcohol. There's no war on medical pills. There's no war on, and all these are drugs. They are drugs by definition, by all kinds of definition we have, by all, by everything we agree on. These are drugs. There's no war on drugs, and we're not not killing drugs. We're caught. We're we're repressing. We're we're um, 
discriminating or putting in jail people who are using substances that we call drugs, and only some. If you look at history, there were societies that you know, would kill people who would use alcohol, but they would allow tobacco. There were societies that would kill people that were, you know, if you look at the Incas or Mayas, they would use psychedelic substances, but, you know, not allow for other substances, etc. So there was always mostly prohibitions. And that this is something I describe, and I, I have a long chapter on it in my book, Elevated. It's on, on the irrationality of prohibitions. And one of the funky examples is the coffee prohibition in Prussia and in, in here in Germany in the, in 1700, around 1740-50, where uh, Frederick the Great uh, prohibited um, a coffee. And you had even like um, mostly French soldiers uh, go into the houses as coffee sniffers, knocking <laughs> sniffing and then you know and the prohibition was not mm -hmm. there because they wanted to i mean frederick the great was famous for drinking his coffee with mustard and pepper yeah but <laughs> so he drank it himself but um they wanted to prohibit it because the beer industry came and said listen all the money goes to uh to the to turkey and those areas um and um and we need the money here and it needs to go to the beer industry <laughs> very specifically. So, so that was the main reason for the prohibition here. And if you look at alcohol, other prohibitions, they have, um, it's not only a protectionism, but they have usually, they are motivated to the public with saying it's toxic very often. It's a toxic substance or dangerous substance in some you know, ways, but it's it, the, the real reasons behind it are different. Let me, say, here's another point about, and I think this is an important point about what keeps the prohibition, prohibition in terms of linguistic programming. Mm. Um, because I think once these metaphors are, are established and once certain ways of using notions like always talking about abuse, not about use, etc. Right. Once that is established, it stays in our minds and in the minds of the society for a long time even after there is scientific evidence, even after we see that cannabis isn't as dangerous, even after we see that it's medically so important, even after we, we learn about the endocannabinoid system, these things stay with us because our thinking relies on metaphors, relies yeah. on ways of using uh, certain concepts, etc. So here's another example. When, when I take my kids, let's suppose I have little kids now, let's say I go to the zoo with them. And every time I go to the zoo, I tell them, today you're gonna see <clears throat> elephants and animals. Elephants and animals. When they're later, uh, when, they, when they grow up, they will be like, yeah, there are elephants and animals. And at a certain point, they will come back to me and say, elephants are, are animals too? And I'm like, yeah, of course. They are. Why did you say elephants <laughs> and animals? This makes no sense. But look at the press, look at the liberal press, look at whatever kind of press, right. and you'll find headlines of rock stars dying from alcohol and drugs. That makes no sense. It makes no sense. Alcohol is one of the most dangerous drugs we know. So to say somebody died of the use of alcohol and drugs is kind of like elephants and animals, you know? Mm. 
But this is so deep. And here is especially in our society, in the German society, um, the use of alcohol is something like, yeah, you know, it's kind of, it's, it's fun. And of course, yeah, it's kind of dangerous. You shouldn't do it too much. But it's, if you tell people, you know, it's a dangerous drug, they're like, or, you know, if you, if I would go and, and, and see somebody drinking a vodka or his third vodka at the party, and I'd go like, oh, so you are a drug consumer with a long history of uh, drug abuse. Is that true? Should be like, <laughs> holy what? <laughs> How dare you? Come here. <laughs> Come here. Are you looking at me? <laughs> you know. So, you know, this is mentally, this is, um, these are things that are very strongly active in, in our minds and they, they keep the prohibition also uh, and they keep uh, fears uh, in, in the minds of people that uphold the prohibition. So we need to think about our language Mm-hmm. And our imagery, which is why, and also, um, if you so, uh, I came up with the imagery in my book, elevated, or actually in the German in the German book that was in um, the predecessor predecessor for the book, because this one is the long version of a German book I published, in which became bestseller here, uh, which was more of a coffee table book. <clears throat> yeah, um, you have that one. Yeah. Hide as positive potential from cannabis. Um, so, uh, and this one elevated is really brilliantly edited by uh, Richard Raza from Hilarious Press uh, mostly, and um, uh, really um, uh, an amazing, amazing new edition where I've put uh, three new um, articles in there, three new chapters, long chapters. Um, but it also has the imagery in there, and it's really well done. I'm I'm, I'm amazed by how well they they did it, um, and how smart they did it. Um, Hilarious Press is the publishing house of the daughter uh, of Ant, um, of Robert Anton Wilson, and of course, it's a great honor to uh, to be published alongside with Robert Anton Wilson. And um, so, but back to the imagery. Uh, I, I tried to show people cannabis and my idea was to show it from a different angle and it's an analog to the linguistic um, to to our linguistic conditioning we've also in images we've been conditioned to you know when you when you hear cannabis or marijuana uh, images come up to your mind of <laughs> syringes which <Yeah. Right. laughs> makes no sense at all um, and uh, other kind of drug-related imagery like the leaf and then Rastas or people who are uh, dying on the street or whatever, you know, all those kinds of bad associations and imagery come up and they are repeated and repeated all over again, even in Germany now where you, I mean, I remember when the medical law here came uh, for uh, cannabis, which is a really innovative uh, law in 2017, the Frankfurter Allgemeine, which is one of the biggest newspapers here, had a title that was, I, I'm still, I, I couldn't believe the title. It was a leaf, a cannabis leaf, but with claws. And, <laughs> and it it was titled The Green Poison. And, wow. <laughs> you know, um, 
And I, that's a mainstream, I mean, it's a conservative, but it's a mainstream newspaper. And they had in the, then they had like seven or, or three, four articles in there. And some of them were very liberal about it, you know, about being that cannabis. So you could see that they're fighting within their, you know, the crowd, within the group of editors, there's a little fight. But the, the guy who was going out with that image was, was guy one probably. And uh, so I thought about how do I create images and having worked as a creative director, I thought it must be possible to reach a wider public with a different kind of imagery because one of my fundamental experiences was that it, it's not enough to have good arguments. You have to have a lot of good yeah. arguments, but, but it, that is not enough. So I came up with the imagery here. For instance, I show you some. Where don't you like my photos? That... Yeah, I love them, man. Put them up. I think people would love them. That book is phenomenal, man. I just, just make you wait. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so, for instance, um, this one, uh, Cannabis Seed. And I wanted to – so the it's an art series, and the big photos are um, – they're large frame and with certain backgrounds with certain macro technique that gives you a, a different type of imagery. But I wanted to go back to the plant and focus on the plant. Then you have a second type of seed where you, where you, where you, that instantly makes you look at the beauty of the plant, but seeing the series, seeing those two seeds, you already understand, oh, there are different genetics, you know, looking at the morphology of the seeds. And the structures they show and the, the, the colors that you see, oops, there there might be a different high coming out of that one. Mm -hmm. And so you have, um, this is how it grows, my little Sputnik. And then <clears throat> you have the little duckling. That was in 2012, by the way. It's all backlit, so it looks a little bit more, it gives you that enhancement of color perception that you sometimes also have during a high. And it gives you more acuity and vision because of a deep focus stacking technique. And then I go up to, I go through the growth stages and then I have photos like this in it where you, where you take a look at the leaf, but you, you see that now a lot, of, a lot in logo design, what they did uh, in the last decade that you, you cut off the leaf and you, you cut off all the, the associations of that you have when you just show the whole leaf. And then all the other images come up. If you look at that, you have a totally, you look at the leaf and you look at the beauty and it's, it's, it's a different, you're in a different realm. And then I have another leaf again, where you see the, the morphology is different. Mm -hmm. It's a different type of leaf. It's a different type of uh, uh, variety. It's a different variety of cannabis. And you understand, it makes you understand on the visual level that, the high might be coming, might be different, and the medical effects, effects might be different. And uh, so here, and then I I used the imagery of the flowers to, and also again showed how different the flowers, the tiny little flowers can be. And as I said in a previous conversation with you, I think this also reflects um, my approach intellectually um, one one thought behind it was that 
usually growers, I mean, we have the old view of cannabis that is uh, misinformed and it's targeted disinformation. And so you have all the bad imagery also in the, bad, in the language, which doesn't really uh, reflect what the plant is. Um, and, but now you also have the growers imagery was mostly on colas and how big the colas are, how much yield they give. So even if you would look in pro cannabis magazines, mostly it was shaped by a certain interest, namely to show not the beauty of the plant, but the beauty of the plant bringing a lot of yield to growers. And I was like, no, I want to go back from all those interests and just take a closer, more focused look at the plant and show the beauty of it. Of it. <clears throat> and um, so I think intellectually, that's also what I did because I consider my my research as basic science, which is not so much only to look at the therapeutic or medical uh, potential, even though my work has implications for, for that kind of use, but to look at more basically how cannabis affects the mind. And um, so these, image, these images, and then I get closer and closer. For instance, here, if you look at the so-called stigmas or hairs, here you see it a bit more uh, that's not mature, not matured uh, yet. And so you can see here um, one of those stigmas that looked white and and in, in that this is one that's hanging like can you see it yeah. yeah this one is hanging in a coffee shop in Amsterdam so I sold that to collectors also and I'm still selling um, <clears throat> uh, if you want to have a look at the whole series you can find it on my website so this is a little drop of water so I want to well, I wanted to open up the minds of people to take a look back at the plant you learn a lot from the from the images also here the trichomies where the where cannabis builds its chemicals uh its cannabinoids and terpenes etc so i wanted to uh give people a fresh look on the plant and and uh it helps me also to make them understand how different varieties can affect the mind differently and to see it how the how the trichomies turn brown and how the stigmas turn brown to see it um, when questions like when do you need to harvest to generate what kind of chemicals do you get uh, when when the plant turns it's you know when when the chemicals in the plant change and um, so so I, these these images help me also to explain a lot about the cannabis high and how it can be different depending on various aspects of harvesting the plant and storing the plant and etc i think it's it, it blows my mind to see the images in that book and then the other book that you that you published as well and when i think about those images and what we can learn from them the way the plant is growing and then we can say wow it's, it's interesting how those particular structures grow the terpenes and stuff like that and then we take that in conjunction with what you said about metaphors it makes me start thinking about how psychedelics and cannabis have this way of, of showing us the relationship between visual adaptability and semantic flexibility. And like that, yeah. that's a, you can fundamentally change the way you model reality with that. You know, yeah. a lot of, in the U S there's this picture of, there's this famous picture and you've probably seen them in Germany and around the world. It looks like a duck or it looks like a bunny. It looks yeah. like an old woman or it looks like a young woman. Yeah. You know, like that is something that I think, 
think cannabis and psychedelics allow us to to flip between. And some people you can only see one thing, but once you see both things, it's like you can see from different perspectives. And in some ways, I think that that is what cannabis and psychedelics are doing to our brain. Is it allowing us to rise above the conditioning, to rise above the abuse and use, to get away yeah. and use metaphors in a way in which they help us see the world instead of narrowing our worldview? What do you think? Yeah, absolutely. I think it's, um, and you think about the aspects I talked about before, pattern, you're yes. changing your pattern recognition, yep. but also empathic understanding and imagination. Um, let me put it this way. Okay. If you are able to when, when you think about other people and when you if you want to empathically understand other people, and this is what I've been involved in uh, in the late 90s when I went to um, uh, North Carolina and I studied with Simon Blackburn and, um, and others, there was a theory coming up called the simulation theory about human understanding where people thought about... Um, how do we actually manage to understand how other people feel and tick and how they act? How they act. And so there was the so-called theory theory, which basically, to put it in a nutshell, said we are using a psychological language like love and hate, and he wants and he has desires, etc. So if you go... Um, uh, if you get hit by by a stick or something, and I, I have a language, and I'm like, oh yeah, he has been hurt by, and so therefore he's angry, and then he will probably do this. So this language gives us the ability to describe uh, to describe your mental functioning, your state, but also to predict, to explain your behavior, and to predict your behavior. So this is when I, this is what I talk about when I talk about empathic understanding, mm -hmm. to be able to describe other people, to do to predict their behavior to a certain degree and to explain their behavior. And um, another theory came up, which was the so-called simulation theory, um, which said, no, this isn't really what's happening because what's happening much, uh, what, what's much more fundamental is my ability to simulate your point of view. So let's say you're hanging off the roof and <clears throat> And uh, you're screaming, uh, you, you almost fell off the roof, and you're like, ah, you're, you're holding on to whatever part of it, and you're screaming, and you're, and, and so, you know, the theory theorists would say, yeah, you know, I know that you must be afraid of falling down, and therefore you, and therefore, therefore, therefore. The simulation theorist basically says, no, what you do is you imagine you put yourself in the moccasins, as the Native American Indians would have said. Yeah, you put yourself imaginatively in the situation of the guy, and you feel similar. You know, of course, you have to adjust your uh, your simulation to that person because maybe you are way more you're an acrobat, and you feel like, yeah, I could jump down four meters or something. That wouldn't, you know, that wouldn't hurt me. But of course, very often, um, and I think there's a very two core to the simulation theory. In the end, I think we need to have a hybrid theory, but let's just let's just take the simulation aspect. We simulate other people 
and we to to be able to have the, those feelings ourselves like i said before when you tell me about a breakup with your girlfriend and i i'm able to to connect to my memory of a similar situation of a loss or of a breakup i can feel your pain i of course i don't feel your pain i feel my pain but i uh, because we are in significant insignificant aspects probably similar i'm like oh i i think i know what you're going through and and i think this empathic understanding is it can become extremely enhanced because our ability to imagine is enhanced because our ability to see patterns is enhanced and there are many other cognitive enhancements that add up to give us that enhanced empathic understanding but that enables us very often to look through the eyes of different people and understand the world in different ways. I think that's a really important aspect to it, to also look at ourselves from outside, maybe, you know, mm -hmm. not only stay in our mind, but to look at ourselves to, and to understand. And there are really touching stories, for instance, in Lester, Lester Greenspoon, my mentor, he, he has a website still up um, which is called marijuana-uses.com, where he collected stories about and, and, and essays and reports about people uh, and their enhancement uses of cannabis. And there, there are really touching stories of, for, of one guy who said that usually when he wouldn't be high, he, um, he wouldn't connect with his kids that well. But then one day he had... Um, uh, he was moderately high and he saw his, I think, four or five-year-old playing on the floor. And, and his son said, hey, daddy, look at that. There is a brilliant, beautiful reflector. So then he said, usually you would say, you would have said, yeah, you know, nice. But then he said, no, I'm, I'm going down to look at to look at what my son found. And he found that the, the sunlight was uh, going through some kind of glass, piece of glass, and he could see the whole spectrum of colors. And he was like, he felt like for the first time he felt like this to a kid this must feel like you know jumping in a, into a pot of gold or it, yeah. it's it's amazing you know and and so i feel like yeah we we are able to see patterns differently uh, but also we are able to look through to to um enter different minds and to take their perspective. And this is something very, very forceful, yeah. very powerful. And at that point, um, I'd like again, I'd like to, to mention the story because yeah. you learn a lot from what cannabis can, how cannabis can help people on the autistic spectrum or with Asperger's. Yeah. Um, uh, because I had one guy who, uh, produced uh, videos uh, of my work and uh, I, I gave uh, video uh, lectures and he said he's an, he's uh, he's Asperger he's been diagnosed with Asperger's and he couldn't be in a relationship without cannabis and he feels like he can connect much better to his girlfriend he can be in a relationship with his girlfriend only because he has cannabis and the, one of the most interesting um, uh, reports I ever got was after I wrote about cannabis and em empathical understanding and, and the enhancements of emp empathical understanding, especially on the reports of mothers from mothers 
uh, about their autistic children mm -hmm. and how they start socially interacting during the intake of or doing a cannabis um, high. And um, so a guy wrote to me, a 20-year-old guy from New York, uh, Arabian, I, saw, I think from a family from Saudi Arabia. He said that's a, a while ago, but... And he said, "You, I, I really want to talk to you, and you're so spot on, and and I need to, to share my experience with you." And he, <clears throat> um, he told me that until he was 16, he had felt like he is disconnected from other people. Not only disconnected, but he felt like he's alone in the world, and other people are. And this is, I quote, "Are other people are an extension of himself?" So. This is what in philosophy you'd call solipsism, technically the view that you're the only, you're, you exist and everything else is an illusion. You know, everybody else is an illusion. Everybody else is a dream or an illusion or it's in your mind, but not real. You are real. And um, <clears throat> so th this is basically the way he felt, deeply felt. It's not like a theory, but he was like, other people don't exist. And then he said for the first time in his life, he smoked cannabis, a joint when he was 16. And then for the first time, he had the, feel he had the feeling of deep connection with others. He felt like he can actually empathically understand them, empathically take their view and understand, oh, what I just said hurt him or her. And I can feel how it hurts her. And I can feel that she's there, that there's somebody else. And so I believe um, that that the endocannabinoid system is deeply, deeply involved in uh, our processing uh, emotional states and in our in the in our empathic understanding, as it is in other higher cognitive functions. And I'm so I'm I'm convinced that, uh, and this is a thesis that I. Um, I better describe in, in Elevated now, in my new book, mm -hmm. is that the endocannabinoid system is probably or might be involved in the architecture of higher cognitive states to a degree that we haven't yet realized. I mean, we know that it's involved in uh, learning memory processing and in other higher cognitive states, but when it comes, of course, to the architecture of pattern recognition, introspection, uh, empathic understanding. How does the brain do that? I mean, there, there have been theories like the, uh, the mirror neuron uh, theory, which is now uh, partially falling apart or being, it's still there, but it's, it's probably not as uh, popular anymore. But I talk about that in my book as well. But we, we must say that we are at the beginning only of understanding of how our brain manages to, uh, you know, to support these cognitive abilities. These, uh, and these are, and that, that's yeah. the interesting point, these are the most, these are the core of the human abilities that make us human. Creativity, empathic understanding, introspection, mm -hmm. insights, you know, as in spontaneous insights, uh, the productive thinking. Um, so, so, so the endocannabinoid system, it seems, seems to be crucially involved, I believe, in, in, those, in the architecture of those mental abilities. 
And that, that would be something I think to pursue for researchers as they go along and want to explain higher cognition to look at the endocannabinoid system and see how it is involved in that because we can see how um, cannabis taken, ingested or inhaled can exogenous cannabis, cannabinoids, plant cannabinoids, phytocannabinoids, how they can interact with the system and maybe enhance it. Maybe sometimes you, you are too enhanced or you're too far out. It doesn't work anymore. Um, uh, but uh, I believe we have a strong um, incentive there uh, from what we know and from maybe my research uh, from, from that field to look deeper into how how endocannabinoids and how the endocannabinoid system is involved uh, in supporting those functions. It's mind blowing to me. And in some ways, like I, I'm beginning to see this thing take shape. Where you know, where if you look at the thesis that you wrote in 2002, and it talked about higher level functioning on some level, you're you're you have this theory about we're going to look back on folk psychology in a certain way. Might it be that we use the endocannabinoid system to start making some of that architecture in some ways, like it's, I see some of the research you're doing now is echoing back to the very foundation that you wrote when you were interesting in your research on cannabis high, have you encountered philosophical questions about altered states of consciousness and their implications for our understanding of reality and the self? Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah. <laughs> and um, that's a that's a real good question. Uh, here's one. Um, I think I, ca I I also came to a deeper understanding of human nature because um, being a philosopher, you are very much so, especially in that type of philosophy that I was dealing in, analytic philosophy of mind. Um, you come from a very rational. Um, perspective, logical perspective, and you're trying. I mean, that is something that started actually in started in in uh, Austrian Germany in the 30s. The analytic philosophy philosophy of language, uh, which was an attempt to uh, set a very strong foundation for philosophy itself, because people like Wittgen, philosophers like Wittgenstein, Rudolf Carnap, said that. Uh, we want to have, we want to rebuild science, um, philosophy as a scientific discipline. And to do that, we need to take out the vagueness from, because what we're using is we're using everyday language, but there's a lot of vagueness and there are a lot of misconceptions in, in our life. So we need to reflect on our language and to look at the structure and the logics and the syntax. And, and we basically, so that became a reflection on language as a tool for thinking to make our thinking about the world more precise and about ourselves and about the nature of everything. So, um, so this is where it come from. And, um, and I still believe, and I still am, you know, somebody who thinks that I'm generating hypotheses that are there to be empirically confirmed. So I want to generate hypotheses where other scientists like neuroscientists can come in and see, hey, does is that right what he says about the episodic memory enhancement? We can, you know, there you, you could actually take a look at only that aspect and there would you could devise some 
some studies. So, so I come from a very rational perspective and from a very rational scientific discipline, but there is something that I call uh, the rational reconstruction era of the self. What is that? That is when we think about and describe ourselves, we think from a state of consciousness that is rational and, you know, rational decision-making, logical thinking, very language-oriented. But that's not who we are. Who we are is defined by conscious states being modulated by the brain itself into states that are completely weird, <laughs> you know, like dreaming. Right. And every night we dream or we, we go in a state, you know, we, we're going through trips of dreaming like for six or eight hours. It's a huge part of our existence. During the day, we're going through states of we are visually absorbed. We're absorbed in the virtual world sometimes. That, that's a different conscious states. We are going through states of ecstasy when we're in an orgasm, when we're dancing, when we're listening to whatever kind of music, when we're going to uh, sports events. That's why people go there. They want to ex experience a state of ecstasy with other people, which is a different state of consciousness. We're going through states of almost hypnosis when we're going to nature and we watch a waterfall or, or through that or um, we're, we're going through states of meditation. Um, so altered states of consciousness are not only something that we induce for fun, but they are built into our nature. That's who we are. We are, our consciousness is something that oscillates between where we are in now to states of half dreaming to states of dreaming to states of being in a even non-dream sleep state to ecstasy to um to hypnosis to meditation to all kinds of various states and some of them are are chem biochemically induced by our own brains so for instance and and that is when i was studying still I was um, asked if I could give a lecture or if I could comment on a lecture by, by an American philosopher, Owen Flanagan, that was at Duke University, who was talking about whether dreams would have an, do dreams have a function, evolutionary speaking, not only personally speaking, we could say dreams or the fact that we are dreaming and that we have experience during dreaming might be personally um, important to us because right. we find out things about our subconsciousness but do they have an evolutionary advantage or are they just happening for some reason that you know doesn't really is is advantageous um and and so so there are these questions about about dreaming also but i think usually we reconstruct our being our human nature as one state or you know the rational state of thinking and talking because when we think about that we are in the state of mind right. and but but i think I, I deeply learned that um the human nature is different and and think about how much value and meaning those states mm -hmm. give to us 
ecstasy, orgasm, hypnosis, or induced states, trance, trance states of dancing, being in a trance state of dancing between ecstasy and, and like a, a trance where you are not verbally thinking anymore, but just like maybe an, uh, moving with people. Uh, and so, so this is an, uh, this is one of the important deep uh, insights that I had into human existence is that we, we should accept our nature more. And also um, when it comes to understanding the, um, the interplay of the left and right hemisphere mm. brain, um, where you see that the brain functioning in the left and right hemisphere is really different. And out of this interplay of hemispheres trying to control our thinking and, and, uh, and working in competition to some degree, but also in combination, how, how, our, um, how everything that we, we see in cognition comes out of an interplay of two different hemispheres of the brain working differently. And so I have in, in one of my books, um, this is in What Hashes Did to Walter Benjamin, <laughs> which is a book which is not only about how cannabis can affect your mind individually, but also about how cannabis has affected societies as a whole through the ideas of people like Walter Benjamin or Carl Sagan or others or Louis Armstrong. Um, in, in this book, I have an essay on a thesis or a hypothesis that was written in a short uh, footnote in uh, The Dragons of Eden by Carl Sagan. Carl Sagan was uh, Lester Greenspoon's best friend. He was the one who actually got Lester to uh, change his mind about cannabis because Lester Greenspoon wanted to write a book about cannabis in, I think it started in the end of the 60s. And he was really as a Harvard professor, associate professor for psychiatry, he was concerned about the use of cannabis and, and uh, psychedelics mm -hmm. At that time, and he was concerned about young people, you know, getting uh, uh, problems with it, and and so Carl Sagan came back to him and said, "No, no, we shouldn't try this. This is good. This this is not as dangerous as everybody believes." And then Lester got into researching it, and and wrote an amazing book. Here's uh, uh, Marijuana Reconsidered. I can mm. still recommend it to everybody because even after. 50 years, it's it's still one of the best books ever, or maybe the best book written on on, on the subject. Um, with his dedication, I'm really proud of him. Uh, he gave it to me uh, when when I visited him in uh, in his home um, in Auburndale uh, in 2016, and. Um, so um, where was I? We were talking. Yeah, Carl yeah. Sagan's thesis. I'm, 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 I'm thinking of Lester. It's always, it's, it's such a, it's such a, it's really a loss to me because I show here uh, very often because we had so many conversations over years, and he became such a dear friend to me. So, but his, um, his uh, friend Carl Sagan. Uh, many people don't know that, but he he used cannabis 
very often and he used it to generate ideas for his public lectures and for his work. And in his book, uh, which is about the, the nature of uh, human uh, cognition, um, uh, in his book, The Dragons of Eden, for which he won a Pulitzer Prize, the Pulitzer Prize, he has the hypothesis that cannabis might suppress the left hemisphere to a certain degree and help the right hemisphere to, uh, um, and, and therefore to produce insights and to produce uh, creative ideas, etc. And I think that he was on to something, um, especially if you look at um, the modern um, view of the left and the right brain hemisphere, because I think many people in the population still have the very simplistic terms in which people put the, the left and right hemisphere workings in the 70s or before the 70s, saying like language have, happens in the left side and emotion on the right side. And all that is, is of course, not, not correct. But what is correct is that the right hemisphere, and we know that from a lot of patients with certain brain damages, et cetera, and from the work of Sperry and others, um, and uh, I can especially recommend uh, Ian McGilchrist's uh, The Matter of Things, oh, yeah. Both of which them. is you know, the book to read on that subject matter, um, <clears throat> where we know that the right brain processes information differently in a more, more holistic way and uh, um, abilities like empathic understanding and imagery and imagination and um, episodic memory, etc., are are uh, more to be found being processed on a certain level. It's not it's not just separated, but it's the aspects of irony, etc., and uh, creativity are more to be found there. And um, so it, it might be an interesting thing to look at how cannabis affects left and right brain hemisphere activity. Um, I have uh, only one, uh, but I have something to add to, to um, Carl's thesis hypothesis, which is that um, if you look at the left brain hemisphere, um, it is crucially important for it to, it's, it's, it's very much involved also in, in the focus of attention. So this is a very beautiful way in which uh, Ian McGilchrist describes how how our cognition works on, on the level of attention. When you have a hen picking for seeds for food, the left hemisphere is more there to, <clears throat> to control in a, in a restricted visual field the picking and the motor control. So it, it keeps you on that in that field and gives you the precision to do that. But the right brain hemisphere is where in your perif uh, peripheral vision, you might, the, the, uh, the animal might see a flying predator or, or a fox. Or, um, and then the right brain hemisphere interferes with that obsessive, you know, picking and says, hey, <laughs> stop it. There's something you need to run away from. And you can, you understand that there, uh, you have to, you have to have two competing systems. The one controls that you stay there and you mm -hmm. have a very close focus. And the other one says, no, 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 no. Wait, here is another signal. This is getting too strong. The fox, there's a pair of eyes there. You should, you should run. This is staring at you. That's not good. You know, so competing systems uh, and the output is something that, that helps you to survive. Um, 
But I think when it comes to um, cannabis, you have to also consider that it also gives you hyper-focus. Mm. This is something where I think less, many and most of the um, cognitive abilities that I've quoted before, um, introspection, empathic understanding, pattern recognition, those are very much right hemisphere, more right hemisphere based. But when it comes to um, focus, th- this seems to be something that ca- cannabis can also do. And this is more left hemisphere based. I looked into the studies. I looked into what's there. But that's a while ago uh, when it comes to right and left hemisphere processing and cannabis and or the endocannabinoid system. But so far, I couldn't find uh, enough evidence for either. There's not a lot. So, so I think this is still a hypothesis that's very interesting and to look into uh, how the endocannabinoid system is involved and or if, if it's hemispherically different or what, what's going on there. But I think Carl Sagan was onto something. And if you look at Carl Sagan's um, research that he had done at that point, I mean, he was on the level. He was, even though he didn't come from that academic field, he had read everything that was really uh, basically the state of the art of knowledge at that point about the left and the right brain hemisphere and about human cognition in evolutionary terms. So, so it was an interesting thesis at that point already and very informed in, uh, thesis because he knew that kind of research and he um, being the smart guy, he was, he already had experiences with cannabis. Uh, so he, this was one where he, uh, where he was talking about that. And of course he wrote an, um, an essay, which I highly recommend to everybody, which was, was called Mr. X, because he was still, he still published that anonymously in Lester's book, Marijuana Reconsidered. Uh, you find it online, I think. Uh, I think it's published. Uh, where or, where um, he also talks about pattern recognition and other cognitive enhancements. Uh, an amazing, one of the best essays on, on the subject matter um, so, um, so Carl Sagan, really interesting point in case when it comes to um, enhancement uses uh, in the States. He's like the one to look at for many Americans. In, in Germany, this has been translated really late with the work of Walter Benjamin, the philosopher, uh, the story that I uh, tell also and in, in my book. Because Benjamin, I mean, if we look at what Sagan did and also how cannabis inspired him, and then he he was responsible for the message of humanity, you know, to go out with Voyager out of the solar system, you know, you can see how maybe cannabis ideas and maybe cannabis um, affected, you know, what the what humanity signaled to other aliens. I mean, think about that. But <laughs> uh, if there if there's an out there and. Um, <clears throat> And Walter Benjamin, for instance, uh, to just go back to the matter of, or to the subject of how um, the enhancements of cannabis m- may have brought ideas or may have uh, helped creative luminaries and how that affected their societies. Think about um, Paul McCartney, who said that the Beatles would have never made the music they made without L- their LSD or cannabis experiences. Um, he literally said that in a quotation. And uh, think about John Lennon's song, song "Imagine," how he, you know, wh- how that affected humanity. How how the Beatles had an effect on humanity and on societies. And Walter Benjamin, for instance, it's a really interesting story intellectually and in the theory, in the history of philosophy. 
because um, he came up with uh, a very, I mean, one of his uh, really influential essays was on the work of art in the age of mechanical reproduction. I think that's mm. the title uh, where he described in the 20s, I mean, that was in, um, uh, in the 20s or 30s, he wrote that I think in the early 30s, I have to look that up, but he was, he experimented with cannabis in the late 20s and uh, he, he wrote protocols about those and uh, experiments. And he also described a lot of, or most of the um, enhancements that I describe. Um, and, um, <clears throat> and he came up with ideas about how modern art changed when, when technologies came where we could copy photos or when film came, which are incredibly which were incredibly influential for the whole art history sector, for how we look at art, for how we look at mm -hmm. how how people change, how societies change under the influence of mechanical reproduction techniques, of film and photo, photography. And and these are, I argue in my book, uh, what Hashish did to Walter Benjamin, which is a collection of essays, uh, not only on Benjamin, but I argue that um, this had a huge impact on how we think about art today and how and it had a direct impact on society and and then there's for instance i have another essay on um on uh, the early evolution of jazz uh, with jazz musicians like uh, louis armstrong and basically all others not all of them, but many others using cannabis and how that how that probably had an in impact on the lives of people on their work and um, get like on the background of my research, and I think that's really underestimated. So, so I think my my work also um, is interesting for historians and for people who want to know about how uh, psychoactive substances had an impact, also a positive, really positive impact on societies. And I, I think that's an open-ended question, but. Um, we're only beginning to have an understanding of because of how luminaries like uh, Louis Armstrong, Billie Holiday, uh, Lester Young, uh, and many, many others who uh, used cannabis. Um, there's, there's a long list. I mean, if you look at the, the Hashes Club, Alexandre Dumas Père, uh, Eugène Delacroix, Charles Baudelaire, Arthur, Arthur Rimbaud, Lord Byron, Mm -hmm. Russell Proust, William Butler Yeats, they all use cannabis and they wrote about it. Uh, Rudyard Kipling, um, Jungle Book, uh, used cannabis. Uh, Carl Sagan, Francis Crick, uh, yeah. Richard Feynman, yeah. Oliver Sacks, uh, Lenny Bruce, uh, George <laughs> Carlin, Bill Hicks, Bill Maher. And basically, uh, somebody sent me a, a clip of George Carlin two years ago or so, uh, a big George Carlin fan. Nice. Uh, where George Carlin talks about cannabis being a tool. And I was like, wow, yeah, he was spot on. And probably uh, because of the influence of Robert Anton Wilson on him, he wrote about cannabis a lot and thought about cannabis as a tool. And um, so I was like, okay, that's that's interesting to know because I, I had never heard him using that uh, metaphor. And... Um, so, but if you if you look at the, all those people, and I'm I'm not even you know I'm not even close right. to what's happening now or what happened in hip hop or rap music or in Rasta music or in the Rasta in the Rastafarian movement or in in uh, 
in all those kinds of musical scenes, um, uh, reggae, etc., with Bob Marley saying really interesting things. Bob Marley is, is for me, is just like um, Louis Armstrong. Louis Armstrong, right. he carried a typewriter, and he it's it's really interesting to read his stuff because he was verb, very verbal and very articulate about his cannabis use and about a lot of things. Very smart guy. He's he's uh, using a jargon, of course, that kind of sounds funny, but he's uh, but he's amazing. I mean, uh, and if you uh, if you're interested in let's see um, in the whole jazz story, also you should read uh, really the blues by Milton Mez Mesro, uh, amazing book also. But so I think that is that is a really interesting field to look into based on my research. And the new image and the new understanding of cannabis as a mind-enhancing tool to, to see how people use it, uh, like Marcel Proust and others, and Oliver Sacks and others, and how it may have affected their ideas and through their ideas, society as a whole. Um, yeah, just just that list of people speaks volumes of the way in which people think and elevated thought and higher cognition. You know, when, when you talk about Ian McGilchrist and the master and his emissary, or he's got a, the, his new book is like a double set, a tome of like yeah. a matter with things or something, you know, yeah. I, um, I'm curious, have you, what, have you given any thought to Julian Jane's idea about a corresponding area to, to Broca, Wernicke's area and, and Broca's area on the opposite hemisphere of the brain? And might that be where auditory hallucinations come from, you know, and, and, and how, how do auditory hallucinations, which you can get on cannabis or psychedelics and, you know, there's so many luminaries that heard voices or the logos or, you know, what is the connection there? Have you thought about that particular aspect of it? Um, not in terms of, uh, of locating it in the brain and, mm -hmm. and in terms of Julian Jane's ideas, uh, which I still have to get into more. I, I have to admit um but i think it's a what i'm what i started thinking about more recently is about also when you look at psychedelic substances like lsd and uh psilocybin helping you to assess your subconscious states yeah. and um how cannabis relates to that and how cannabis could also help you because I work more on how cannabis can give you really great insights and how it helps your reflective contemplation and give you the ability to see patterns in your lives. And that I guess it does also help you to assess your subconscious states, and but in in a different way. And so it might be interesting. And I just I'm just in contact with a friend who uh, told me about her use of psilocybin mushrooms in connection with uh, cannabis, and which. Which brings me to another point that I touched on in um, the art of the high, where I talk about cannabis and meditation, mm. and and I um, I talk about the question: is 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 a cannabis high good for meditation or not? Mm. And I believe we should look at the whole spectrum of possible. Um, altered states of consciousness out there as states that can potentially help us to gain knowledge yeah. 
gain knowledge about ourselves, about our unconsciousness, about our, the, the nature of the brain, about our individual uh, problems or needs. Uh, and <clears throat> I very often see purists, you know, saying like, ah, no, a pure, you know, if you do a meditation, you, you shouldn't have that. You shouldn't have LSD or whatever, because that's gonna, and yeah, you know, uh, maybe that's true. Maybe, maybe the meditation or some states of there are various kinds of meditations, but maybe um, some sort of uh, substance doesn't really help to achieve what you want to achieve with it. But we should, I think we should be more open to the idea that we can combine those substances to achieve whatever is out there. And, you know, I, I recently listened to another podcast episode with a therapist uh, who was working in Switzerland who uh, also worked with various, um, you know, and, and if you talk to people who tell you, I mean, I talked to a clubber, that's like 10 years ago, who told me how, how he uses first cannabis and then he uses speed and then to and then they go out and they go dancing then they use a little lsd and then use this and this and that to come down and get up again i was like holy cow and i'm such a naive person when it comes to that but i i uh it's all also an interesting field to get into how people uh use those uh, a variety of substances or techniques to alter mm -hmm. your consciousness like hypnosis and and so um so I think we should be more open to the idea of combine. I mean, yeah, if, if it makes sense, also toxicologically speaking, we need to be careful with all that, of course. Um, but but I think cannabis has an incredibly incredible potential for uh, also psychotherapists and others, um, and and of course microdosing LSD could be you know you can think about how to combine LSD with MDMA, etc., in other states to to achieve what you want to achieve for certain purposes. And I think people are out there now who are exploring mm -hmm. that realm. Um, but uh, but that's that's a lot of space there yeah. <laughs> to go into. But so much potential and so so many you know, ways to go, which so far haven't been explored because it was prohibited. And and I think it's going to take a long time until we get the regulations to go there uh, in a legal setting. But um, but um, I, I encourage everybody to be a bit less religious or less purist about it because you may have good reasons. I mean, I I really listen to people well if they if they come from a background yoga background if they they're very knowledgeable and they tell me uh, that this kind of meditation shouldn't go with cannabis or so or cannabis doesn't even help you or even stop you from going deeper into your meditation that could well be true but it could well be also that they have prejudices so I'm I think we should uh, approach this uh, as scientists and as Mind researchers of the mind with a, with an open attitude and and just see what what helps us or what doesn't. Yeah, I think the idea of, of layering different substances together could open up whole new realms of thought and schools of thought and open up our imagination in a way. You know, here's an idea. On some level, doesn't it see? Like we spoke a little bit about about um like typography and different modalities and how they gave us the idea of exact repeatability. You know, when you tell a story, boom, that's the first time. It wasn't that long ago that Marshall McLuhan was writing the Gutenberg galaxy. And they're talking about these ideas of how it changed the way we model reality. 
on some way, and, and he, he, I think he went on to make the claim that what happened there was a shift in sense ratios. Might it be possible that that's what cannabis and some of these psychedelics are doing for us? Is it shifting our sense ratio so we experience everything different? I love it. I love it. <laughs> yeah, really good question. Uh, I just wondered. I, you know what I just wondered about? Is it what? what is that? Somebody who's never tried any of those substances sits there and he's like, oh my God, I, I, I smoke a joint and everything is going to be different. Or, and, and I'm going to see like the birds are going to look like uh, like a Dracula or something and clouds are going to be like green. And no, I don't want that. <laughs> yeah. So um, <laughs> there's this kind of vagueness in your question. <laughs> totally, totally. <laughs> Yeah, I, I believe that um, it doesn't, it will not change your, hopefully it doesn't change your sensory systems in a way that you are not able to orient yourself in the, in the real world anymore. But yes, it might give you um, at least, uh, I can say that it might give you insights. Yes. For instance, for instance about yourself, where and, and this is something people report all the time that they say, oh, um, I had an insight into the world, into myself, into other people, the, the nature of how other people function that changed my perception of others, of myself forever. Mm -hmm. yeah. um, and of course, uh, we know that psychedelics and cannabis can be very powerful substances to change, for instance, to get you out of... Um, depression, for instance, you know, some people have various anxiety, depression disorders, and they, they take cannabis, uh, or they take LSD, and then suddenly they are like, okay, that's done, you know, I'm, I'm over it. They, some of them went through years and years and years of, like, of therapies, and they couldn't, couldn't go there. And, and so, yeah, it can change your, uh, it can change everything for you. Um, but it, that, <laughs> say, Having said that, it doesn't mean that you take LSD right. and you're never going to come back to the to right. functioning in the real world. You know that's uh, hopefully not the case. Yeah, without a doubt, there's always risks. And, and when I when I mean shifting your sense ratio, you know, I, I had mm -hmm. a I, I had a chat with our friend Chat GPT on this exact idea, and I had asked the 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 large language model. What would the world look like if humankind were to have a subtle shift in the ratio in which they comprehend information? And it, what it gave back to me was this long list of like empathy and compassion. And obviously it was just like a hypothetical, but the way it sent it back to me is like, wow, I, I feel like that's what's happening in my life a little bit. Maybe my relationship with, with cannabis and psychedelics has on some level, or maybe it's the great conversations with people like you, but it's, it's allowed me to have that perspective change and see the patterns in nature that are happening in my life. And you get like this grand sense. Like I'll give you an example. I have this vine that climbs up a tree. And isn't it interesting that that vine knows to produce a fruit that drops at a 47 degree angle on August 3rd at 3.37 PM. You know, so too, is, is that how our life unfolds? Are we part of this master plan as well? But those are the kind of insights I get on a higher when I'm in a higher state of consciousness or in an altered state of consciousness, I never would think about that 
in my daily life where I get up, go to work, come home, have dinner, take a shower. But in these altered states, you can really begin to see the patterns that are there. And I, I like to believe that those are patterns in our life. I think it's fractal in some way, but I mean, I can't prove that. I can't prove someone else of that. But what do you think about those? Like we spoke a little bit about pattern recognition, but that's what I mean by, by the, that's what I mean by the shift in yeah. ratios, I guess. Yeah. Um, I, I do think that, um, for instance, I, I give an example uh, with imagination and yeah. during uh, early highs, I had, um, <clears throat> I had more visual highs where I was almost tripping. And I remember that after that a while, I could still imagine, I felt like I'm better able to imagine things even not taking cannabis because it seemed like I had trained my ability to imagine to a certain degree that still stays with me for a while. Yeah. And um, I do believe also that the patterns we see during a, a high or during a, an altered state of mind uh, induced by whatever kind of psychoactive substance can, of course, change our, our view, but it can also change the way we, we view things and we look at things, seeing different patterns, attending to different things, maybe attending more to nonverbal behavior, maybe uh, seeing, looking more broadly at what happens, what's happening in the world, yeah. opening our view for the suffering of other people, you know, mm -hmm. opening our view to the suffering of animals. I mean, a lot of people maybe under the impression of having a more extended empathic understanding, being able to connect with their own bodies or to others are later able to have a better understanding and see differently and, and you know, start vegetarian diets or uh, which happened with me also because they're more empathetic about other things. And <clears throat> interest, there is an interesting question about how, and I went to a conference of Albert Hoffman, um, uh, when he turned 100, that was uh, his celebration, and he was alive. Uh, in in Basel, in Switzerland, there was a conference on Albert uh, on Albert Hoffman's work, and <clears throat> it was really fascinating because there were all kinds of people, scientists, and uh, from scientists to artists to ravers to mm -hmm. young people to business people, etc. And <clears throat> what happened there was there was a discussion, a podium discussion. It was in a, in a conference center that's usually there for whatever kind of conferences. Uh, huge auditorium with like almost a thousand people, space for like 800 people or so. And, and there was this podium discussion on how cannabis and psychedelics and LSD uh, affected society in the 60s. Or, so the question was, were the 60s, was there a, a big movement? And because there was this kind of liberation from old values. Mm -hmm. Therefore, the substances came in and they started to experiment. Or did the substances themselves start the revolution? You know, so what was the relationship? Well, how did the whole thing evolve? And and that was a really interesting debate um, with an open end. Some people being more critical, some people being more, yeah, th these substances helped a lot to change the perspective of a lot of people. And the interesting thing is after, after the discussion was over, there was, uh, I think it was the Akasha project by the, uh, also Christian Rich mm. took part, the great, uh, mm. uh, 
right. who recently uh, tragically died. Um, and and they they start to make music uh, like kind of ethno trans tribal uh, electronic uh, something danceable music, uh, wonderful uh, stuff that they played on stage. And I remember I was sitting in the it was in the evening after all those discussions. It was in the auditorium. Everybody was sitting in chairs and they played their music. And after a while, I saw some some young people starting to dance. Uh, like a group of five people, and you know everybody was sitting. You know, it's a scientific conference, <laughs> and I remember my own feeling about them. Right? It was like, ah, oh, come on, you know, it's kind of, uh, it's not really the place to dance here, or it's kind of, yeah. And half an hour later, everybody danced in that room, <laughs> and you could see like a very strict grid, you know of, of um, held by beliefs, held by certain um, conventions that are in our mind, you could see that very strong grit being in place and then suddenly here's a movement and the grit goes like a little bit like, and then suddenly moves there. And, and, and at a certain point, everybody goes dancing, yeah. everything, there's a new wave and, and a new, everything breaks up. And and uh, people are happy and are you know are talking to each other in a different way and you yeah. know the whole scene break and, and you know like I said there are scientists there are old people young yeah. people artists all kinds of different suddenly everything goes together and the inhibitions break down and and something completely new emerges out of that and I thought that's that's such a forceful. Um, um, metaphor for what happened in the 60s yeah and i'm i'm sure that uh substances like uh lsd and others played a role in that in this room the music played the role um and and i think uh yeah it it really can change not only our perception of things and how we see patterns but our the way we act the way we relate to others the way we see our society evolving the way we and now I'm, I'm with Ernst Bloch, who, interesting, in the, the philosopher Ernst Bloch was um, writing his books in the 50s about, um, and he was the one to sit down with Walter Benjamin in the 20s, taking cannabis in, or hashish, high, high doses of hashish in the 20s. And interestingly, um, Ernst Bloch was a professor in Germany at my University of Tübingen, and became very famous because he became friends with Rudi Dutschke, who was like the revolutionary guy in Germany, who would be like the leading figure in the 68 revolution. Now, Ernst Bloch, under the impression probably also of cannabis, <clears throat> was considered a neo-Marxist. And Marxists believed basically that the human mind and human existence is very much shaped by the environment, you know, so they thought in classes and they thought that the humans are shaped by what they believe. Ernst Bloch in his main uh, work wrote a passage where he said, humans are not um, only shaped, it's also he wrote a book called Geist Utopie, the, the spirit of utopia. <laughs> I think the translation is different right. in English, but he, uh, something utopia. But anyway, he thought that what defines us as humans 
is not only our environment and how we're educated and where we live and which class we live, but interestingly, and that's and he writes about that, that under the impression of a cannabis high, he feels like his imagination is enhanced and therefore he can think about a utopia which frees him to be a different being mm. because now, and that's what, what his point was about humans was, that they are characterized not only by their environment and by who they are now and their history and their education, da, 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 but they are defined by who they want to be, what their dream is, what their utopia is, what, you know, what they can dream up, what their proficiency is to dream up something that they want to live towards. And, and this is something also, you know, yeah. that inspired the whole generation. <clears throat> yep. And um, so Cannabis and other substances might help us to enhance our creativity, our imagination as a society, to um, to get over our problems, to get over our fears, uh, and to to reconnect with others empathically. So I think it's all in there. We could use that, but again, I'm not. I don't agree with people like Timothy Leary who thought that <laughs> you just drop it on the population, it's going to work. You know, the seed is going to grow and it's going to work because some people might just be get anxious and paranoid and others might say, hey, see, this is what happened. This guy jumped out of the window or, right. you know, got on the bus and therefore we need to shoot all these people who distribute those substances. So we need to really think about intelligently, A, how to, how to build um, – regulations about those substances, how to reintroduce them into medicine and into society, how to give people access, but also education um, to use those substances. And if we do so, um, I believe that they can make a huge, that can they have a huge impact on, on, actual, on, on not changing our perception, decoupling us from, from, bad habits as a society, as humans, uh, and and from really changing our direction because the direction we're seeing right now is uh, frightening in society. So, yeah, that, if, if past relevant behavior is the best predictor of future behavior, does it seem to you that like we are on the cusp of change again. If we look at the late fifties where psychedelics were in this medical container and then it moved from the container out into more of a public arena, it seems that now we are sort of like in a medical container, but there's all this education that's beginning to, to build up around it. Do you think that maybe this particular wave can be different than the last wave? Maybe some of the authority figures were, were afraid of breaking out of the power structure or afraid of people becoming their higher selves. What do you, I know speculation is just speculation, but do you see some similarities to the past wave versus this wave? And, and might education be different this time? Um, we definitely see, I mean, if you look at, at the states in the 70s, you already saw that the liberalization taking place in regulations. A lot of states were allowed, it was kind of decriminalized. Mm -hmm. And um and I remember uh, Lester telling me that uh, Carl, Carl Sagan reading his manuscript, his very liberal book then coming out in 71, I think it was, or 70, uh, Marijuana Reconsidered, where he said it's probably going to take 10 years or so for legalization to take effect. Um, uh, Carl said to him, You're, uh, that's the only thing where I really 
think you're wrong because it's not going to take it's going to take it's only going to be a few years from now until this thing is going to be legal now 40 years later 50 years later it's still not legalized uh, uh not in the sense we'd like it to right um so i i do think <clears throat> there are some similarities um yes there were already efforts to make it uh more accessible, more legal to use it. And we, we had a lot of great studies up until the 70s, mm -hmm. 60s, uh, and uh, people who worked on it. And then there was a 40 year long nothing, not not nothingness, some right. people working in the underground. But but the problem is, of course, that it left people like me working in a space where there's, there's for me, there's, it's, it's hard to come back. I'm not working for an institution, so nobody takes you serious, you know. You yeah. work for 20 years and you, you, you write several books on the subject and you have your academic credentials, but you're not in an institution. So everybody's like, yeah, you know. And so, uh, and a lot of other people, I think, are in that space because they're considered outsiders because, of course, the system didn't allow their research or didn't, um, yep. didn't give them money for their research. So, um, there are some similarities there are but there are things that are really different and when you look at cannabinoid medicine um i mean for instance we know a lot more about the endocannabinoid system that that yeah. knowledge is not going to go away we have we have a lot of different tools now like medical vaporizers to uh to use cannabis and we have the knowledge in the field already of like look at canada uh, the last time I looked, there were 450,000 patients. I think it must be maybe 500,000 now. I'm not sure. And, of course, you have uh, experience from the recreational uh, space. Uh, but in terms of patient population, you now have a lot of experience. You have new technologies coming up. I just heard a, a German pharmacist really interesting, giving a really interesting talk about uh, topicals where he said that Maybe the new German, because here we're going to have a new German law soon taking effect. Uh, it's still not ratified. We still, we're still waiting for the big decriminalization to take place, but it's probably going to take effect and be effective in January. And he said, once that happens, maybe we get closer to being able to explore how topicals work. Because, for instance, we know that the endocannabinoid system is active in all five layers of the skin, functional wow. layers. And the, one of the problems right now is that uh, for um, uh, for CBD topicals uh, to uh, or, or THC topicals to enter the skin and to get to the deepest layer, uh, which is important for, for instance, nociception or for, for pain, treatment or for anti-inflammatory for uh, for an anti-inflammatory effect people with arthritis or other things so you need to maybe you can come up with formulations that have transporter molecules that bring the cannabinoids deeper into those um, layers and so you you can see how technologically we have evolved from the 70s we have gained a lot of knowledge in in uh, medicine what we also have now and I think this is not to be underestimated. You uh, you mentioned ChatGTP, um, and I think artificial intelligence is going to change the way we retrieve knowledge from the whole medical field because mm -hmm. we are looking at a lot of we we're still looking at 
RCTs and randomized controlled studies uh, as the gold standard uh, in, in the medical field. In, in my belief, from what I've seen as a philosopher and as a, somebody who has worked in the pharmaceutical industry selling or you know, as a marketing communications director for, for uh, cannabis, natural cannabis, and real world evidence, what's called real world evidence, how we, how we actually consider evidence that comes from the experience of doctors in right. the field, yeah. from patient feedback, from other feedbacks, from observational studies, et cetera, um, is underestimated. And, and I think once we apply um, artificial intelligence on that kind of real world studies, uh, experiential reports, but also it's, it's going to help us to understand how a complicated compound like cannabis with its more than 140 cannabinoids, with its more than 200 terpenes and dozens of flavonoids, how it's going to really affect and target receptors in our brains and bodies. That's an incredibly complicated equation and artificial intelligence and computational power will help us to better understand how this affects us individually also with genetics, you know, yeah. and giving us the important information about how we're individually different, how we might respond differently to those substances. Also, medicine now finally finding a bit more or looking a bit more into how women and men um, react differently to medications and how they have different symptoms uh, that will play a role. Uh, so I do think we could, and as again, I'm, I'm careful, right. we are at a different point, and yep. this could propel our knowledge, and this could propel societies. But of course, you know, um, we're seeing the United States struggling not to become a fascist state, country, and I'm, I'm meaning that uh, coming from Germany and knowing the history, yeah. I'm dead serious about that. This is something that is a possibility. Um, we're seeing in Germany, like we have the AfD uh, party, which is really right-winged and under observation of secret service, etc. They, I mean, they have very radical uh, elements. Uh, they have like they're up to 20 percent almost nationwide now we're seeing radicalization i mean we don't need to talk about what's happening in russia what's happening in china so we're seeing um, democracies collapse we're seeing people running after uh, authoritarian leaders again and thinking about all oh, this doesn't work we need another big guy we're seeing that not only in the States, but in China, we see that in uh, Hungary, we see that in other places. And um, so, yeah, we, you know, it's, it's, uh, it's going to be a battle and it's, it's going to be a fight. So, and, and in that larger context of what's happening uh, in modern societies, everything can happen, but I think we are, we are totally at a different point as to what means we have to, um, to study those substances as to what we already know about those substances and what they can do. So um, I think it's worth really standing up for it. And one thing I've, which is really uh, important to me is um, 
to tell people that it's not about, because here, especially in Germany, it's portrayed as like the legalization or full giving people, adults, responsible adults, full access to cannabis as a, as a substance. I always tell them it's not about recreational use as in use it for fun. Mm-hmm. I, I always say it's about re-creational use. Mm-hmm. We need to recreate ourselves, not having fun, not just chill out and relax. People, and if you look at how people are using cannabis, many of them, and they've started that, say, and other psychoactive substances, of mm-hmm. course, they're using it to find to to get back into their bodies, to be, get back to relating to others, to see new patterns, to um, to have a different perception of music, to to go on a on a voyage, to travel personally travel, to elevate mm-hmm. their whole being, and and this is what my book Elevated is is all about that people are struggling, that the ways in which this elevated is a deeper exploration, by the way, um, which is for those who are interested more into the psychology, it has more than 180 references, uh, um, scientific references, and it's uh, opposed to The Art of the High, which is a book that I wrote, a minimalist book, which is a guidebook for people to more practically understand how they can use cannabis to experience um, those enhancements. It's, it's a book that you can read in three hours. The um, Elevated is a book for, for readers who want to go a bit, deep, a bit deeper and understand a bit more about enhancement uses like uh, the enhancement of classical understanding, introspection or empathy uh, or insights and, and also about the history about the prohibition uh, and um, so I, I it's important for me to state that usually when we talk about the prohibition some of us understand how how the prohibition has caused epic suffering but I think we need to think about the um, prohibition and about legalization also in terms of what potential we are missing by not allowing people to using cannabis and other psychoactive substances in an educated way uh, when it comes to using it therapeutically, but also when it comes to use it um, inspirationally for all kinds of enhancement uses. Because this bears for us as a society, I think, bears the chance to really help us to get away from bad habits and to get away from negative perceptions of other others to reconnect and to um, to move this to a different place and to basically to survive as as uh, as humanity and to survive in a human way humane way this is such a wonderful conversation you know what i wish you could see what i'm looking at i have like four pages of questions and i think i got through two of them like it's just so fun to talk to you man we're gonna we're gonna have to come back. Maybe we can do like a once a month thing because I I think there's so much information and uh, maybe can you hold up the book again, the elevated book, the your newest book? Yeah. So for people that are watching, this is the newest book, and is it has it already been released on on all the major platforms? Yeah, yeah, I guess so. Um, and uh, you can go through uh, Hilaridas Press, the website, or you can go on my website, which is uh, Sebastian Marincolo. 
in one word, um, .de, and then you find the links to uh, other places. And um, yeah, it's been released uh, this summer. And uh, like I said, it's it's a marvelous edition, and I'm, I'm really happy that um, Hilarious Press uh, put so much work in it, because uh, especially Richard Raza and um, my my agent Michael Johnson, who brought me to that. It was a, basically a fun story because this was one of my readers. Uh, he read my book, uh, What Hashes Did to Walter Benjamin in the States. He's a really great guy, Michael Johnson, and and. Uh, Lovely guy. And he, he wrote to me and he said that um, he just wanted to express uh, that this is an amazing book, etc. And and then I told him, hey, and and, and that I he encouraged me to to publish that uh, in in the States with or to find a publishing house. And and then we talked, we went back and forth in our conversation, and then I said to him, Hey, um, if you find me a publisher, I'm gonna make you my agent. <laughs> so awesome. And he uh he tried uh a few and then he he's friends with Richard Raza and he brought me to um Hilaritas Press. And when they when Richard Raza from Hilaritas Press, who's a who is a friend of uh Robert Anton Wilson, when he received the message from uh, Michael Johnson, he had he said that he just put one of my quotes in um in one of the edition, new editions of uh, Robert Anton Wilson's book. And uh, I'm not sure, but I think it was this quote, uh, which uh, is in The Art of the High, where I say, a marijuana, a marijuana high can enhance core human mental abilities. It can help you to focus, to remember, to see new patterns, to imagine, to be creative, to introspect, to empathically understand others, and to come to deep insights. If you don't find this amazing, you have lost your sense of wonder, which, by the way, is something that I can bring back too. <laughs> so, uh, so yeah, and he had just put that in the book and said, "Oh, that guy Marinkolo, yeah, that sounds interesting." <laughs> so that worked on that, and um, yeah, I'm I'm really happy because working because I I had to self-publish uh, some books, or you know, two books, and uh, self-publishing isn't fun, uh, and it's it's always great to have an edit. A, a, especially such a great editor at it and people giving you responses and uh, uh, on your on your writing and to be um, blessed with uh, such an environment. And uh, so I also encourage people to take a look at Hilarious Press and at the work of Robert Anton Wilson. I am very ashamed to say that it took me a while to discover it because my readers came back to me and said, you need to read Robert Anton Wilson. But I think I was a bit a victim of the public image or a widespread image of Robert Anton Wilson here in Germany because he, he made an impact, he had an impact here. But I think people looking at the Illuminati series, they kind mm -hmm. of um, looked at him as not having... Uh, because he was a letter editor for uh, Playboy, and then he got all those conspiracy theories, and he made those. He, he uh, in his books he talked about them, but of course he was aware, aware of them, and he was uh, smart enough to to play with all that uh, in the Illuminati series. Uh, but I think he was a bit more considered here as a conspiracy theory, whatever, not. And and so I was like, ah, do I really want to know? And I, I recently read his Ishtar Rising book, which was originally called The Book of the Breast. And it's just, and, and other uh, 
other things, other books by him. And it's just amazing uh, to see the density of ideas and to, so I, I highly encourage everybody to not read my book, Elevated, forget about it. <laughs> it's not even <laughs> worth it. <laughs> no, but, but seriously, uh, take a look. Um, go to Hilarious Press to the website and um, and uh, if you, after looking at <laughs> Robert Anton Wilson books, you don't find anything, then still you might want to uh, consider reading Elevated. Uh, but but yeah, uh, um, because the, these are beautiful editions, new editions of his books. Uh, he also uh, published two books with uh, Timothy Leary. So um, and and he was amazing, not only amazingly smart, but if you. If you look at, for instance, I mean, his um, the book of the breast or Ishtar rising, um, he was uh, given the task to to make a book on breasts uh, from the Playboy uh, uh, magazine, and he wrote. Th this is like a very early um, feminist manifesto in a way, where he talks about breastfeeding and how it affected societies to suppress breastfeeding. Uh, and how to go through various, um, yeah, how wh what kind of personality came out, personalities came out of that, and how it, it influenced whole societies. Unbelievable insights and incredibly informed, um, and it's really interesting to see his sources and where he got information from. And I think both, uh, if if I can compare myself to um, his approach. Because I didn't know his approach when I was doing that. Is we were both very guerrilla in the way we looked at our sources and where we took our information from. So I found a lot of parallels uh, in our approaches and thinking. And um, so, uh, so yeah. So I think it's it's a great place to be in and to be um, so really for me an honor to be uh, published alongside with this work. Yeah. And I, I, I would say that you echo those sentiments with an incredible list of insights and a unique way of looking at the world and incredible vast drawer of knowledge that you have that strings everything together. It's really, it's amazing. And I, people should get a certificate. If they read all your books, you should send them a certificate in, in, um, <laughs> so, so, so it should be a class, man. There's so much in there. But, you're officially, you're officially a nut now. <laughs> A drug nut. <laughs> <I> love this. <laughs> well, Dr. Sebastian, this has been Thank amazing. You. I really, really appreciate it. And I'll I'm going to talk to you briefly afterwards. But to, to the people watching and listening to this, I hope you uh, had as much fun and you uh, are as in, stoked about it as I am. And I would encourage everybody listening or watching to pick up the book, pick up all of them, whether it's the book about photography, whether it's the new book Elevated or – you can't go wrong. I think you'll come away with a whole new understanding and perspective. It's it's kind of like, you know, being in an altered state of consciousness just by reading them. So, ladies and gentlemen, go down to the show notes, check out Dr. Sebastian, and that's all we got for today. One more time, where can people find you at, Sebastian? Uh, it's SebastianMarincolo.de is my website. Sebastian Marincolo with C, the Marincolo. Nice. Okay, ladies and gentlemen, that's all we got for today. I hope you have a beautiful day. Aloha. Thank you. Aloha, everyone. 
Thanks for taking a moment to hang out with me in the True Life Podcast. I truly appreciate it. If you're taking some time to listen to this, whether it's your first podcast with me or you've been with me the whole way, I truly want to say thank you from the bottom of my heart. Additionally, I would like to try to inspire everyone. The world is a crazy place. And if you listen to your heart and you take some chances, I really think the world will unfold in front of you in ways you can't imagine. I've been doing the podcast for about five years. Last year, I decided to take the plunge. Well, circumstances dictated that I took the plunge. And I did. I've begun working on the podcast full-time for almost a year now. And it's been so rewarding to me that I just want to try and inspire other people. If you have a dream, if you have a vision, follow the voice in your heart. Listen to the song on the wind and embrace the challenge. I think you're strong enough, you're smart enough, and you're good enough to make your dreams come true. But you have to believe in them. And I truly believe wholeheartedly that if you take a chance, a real chance on what is possible, then your dreams will unfold in front of you. Uncertainty can be a monster. It can be something that we run away from. But much like fear, if you stand in front of it, it's not that big of a problem. I know everyone listening to this has a dream and a vision, and I hope you all conquer it. And I want you to know it's possible. Take baby steps and move towards it, and you will get closer to it. Your relationships will be better. Your life will be better. And you know what? You deserve it. You're an amazing person. If you get a moment, go down to the show notes. If you can, support the show. Thank you so much for being here. Now let's get to it.